Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 162nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that is now the most popular finance podcast on the planet. And no, it totally doesn't matter what we paid for that privilege. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter, and my co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Glad to be here this week after a particularly saucy weekend. Um... Did you spend a lot of time watching the Invitational? Uh, I had it on in the background for quite a bit of the weekend. Uh, I was interested in the rivalry between LSV and Cedric that was developing on social media. So it was uh, fun to see Cedric spank LSV, um, but I probably would have thought it was just as fun if it went the other way. I also had it on in the background, but not intentionally. It was playing in the background of one of my Wikipedia pages, <laughs> but we'll get to that later. And we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the uh, Hoobie. MDG Fast Finance is proudly, proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. You can use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. So, Travis, what is on the agenda this week? James, this week we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers, where James and I will run through all the cards that increase the most in price this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. We'll run through the couple cards that we've got our eyes on uh, for the near future. And James with a uh, game time second and third pick. It was a little, the sheet was a little sparse coming into today because everything already got bought. Uh, segment three, our metagame week in review, uh, Grand Prix Calgary. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Pardon my Canadian. Uh, we're yeah. modern. <laughs> yeah. and, That's Calgary, yeah. And segment four, our topic of the week. Uh, looks like we had a question from a listener that I think uh, I think we'll touch on. But also, the bigger story is the, oh, God, what are they calling this one? The Mythic Invitational. Um, yeah. And specifically, the, you know, there's the card reveals, of course, which is what everyone's talking about. But there's the other half of it, which is the, like, the Twitch viewership numbers and the YouTube stats. So we just want to talk about that a little bit because there's some stuff going on there that might not be uh, completely obvious to everyone keeping track. So let's get started. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, Kaya Orzov Usurper out of Ravnica Allegiance. Non-foil is 9 to 12. So about a 33% jump. Uh, uh, some good standard demand here, kind of kind of pushing her a little bit. Uh, some interest in her, especially with uh, being a Planeswalker coming into that War of Allegiance or... Uh, War of the Agents, War of the Spark. War of the Spark. And uh, I guess Saffron's been playing it in Modern on stream. So I think this is probably, you know, when we're talking about it this week as 9 to 12, it's more of a uh, the, the tip of the iceberg type of thing. We could see a lot more activity out of this card in the near future if uh, if it gains more traction in Standard or if Saffron's deck actually ends up being good, which happens every now and then. Yeah, it's... It's an interesting inflection point because I was in on this card at $5 at uh, GP Cleveland and tweeted about it at the time. And the buy list got up over 10 on the Sunday. 
and then collapse a few days later as a lot of other people that bought it up at five, um, hoping it was going to be good, managed to out um, and kind of refilled the inventory slots at the variety of vendors that were buy listing it. Um, and since then, there has been relatively persistent moderate play in standard it's been featured pretty heavily in the best of one format on arena which and i think that just seeing it getting it getting a lot of camera and streamer time in that format uh coming out of the esper decks has probably helped its overall visibility which has sold some copies and then you've got you know people theorizing about its potential usage in modern uh, like saffron probably on the fringes but this this sliver of a chance that this is a three or a four of in modern probably not but like maybes and currently buy lists are up over 10 again and i'm just about to send a buy list order and i think i'm gonna out at least two-thirds of my copies yeah i would imagine you just pull the trigger on all of them right i mean i i guess i could see holding on to some of them if you're greedy and you've already made your you know you've already made your money and you're back in the black but i don't know yeah, I guess you can hold some. I, I like to think I'm an entirely rational investor, but Bitcoin went up 17% last night and I haven't sold out of it yet. So, Yeah, I was contemplating selling mine too, not because I'm just trying to be wash my hands of it and be done with it, but because there has to be a retrace after that, right? I I, I was pointing out on Twitter, I, I don't even... At one point, I felt like there, were, there absolutely was a clear narrative building towards the end of 2017, in the last half of 2017, about crypto. And it was so overwhelmingly positive in terms of the mass amount of media coverage. Um, You know, even the, you know, the critics that were out there felt like they were being left in the dust. Like just, there's a bunch of old white guys talking about how crypto made no sense to them and it wasn't really slowing things down. But fast forward a year and a half later, and it's become very clear that there's just such widespread fraud in the crypto industry in general that even the parts of the core products like Bitcoin, which make perfect sense to me, are you know caught up in a haze of you know misappropriation of funds and outright theft and connections to the mafia and who knows what else. So especially given how strong the return on investment is in magic finance right now, it's got me thinking that maybe a good chunk of my Bitcoin is going to get outed shortly too. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. We'll see. Um, so anyway, back to Kaya. Anyway. Kaya is kind of in a similar position. Maybe she gets up to 20 on the back of some major wins, either in standard or modern. And maybe she doesn't at all. Um, maybe she feel, falls completely off the radar and is forgotten for the time being only to come back to the forefront at some point for some, for, reasons unknown down the road. And I think that anytime you've got a chance to, you know, double up, uh, even if it's to credit rather than cash, you probably just take that. For, well, yeah, anytime you have the chance to double up, I, uh, I, I think you should probably sell, but in any case, uh, sliver queen out of stronghold, non-foil 75 to 105. Uh, people are guessing slivers are going to be in horizons. I, I, if they're, if they're going to go with a tribal deck, I don't like slivers. They're just such a such a shallow tribe, right? Like it feels like there's not a lot of design space because you have to pl- plan around all of the slivers doing what you put on one card. So making one card powerful means you're making all the cards in somebody's deck powerful. Like that just seems tough to swallow. So I don't I, know. I don't love so, it. Well, A, I don't love it because we don't have any information that it's actually true. 
Um, however, you can make a solid point about Sliver Queen being a reserve list card. So the chances of it backtracing uh, much are greatly reduced. Um, and there's still plenty of casual Slivers stuff going on. So if Horizons does not have Slivers, we all know that eventually we will get Slivers again. And I actually had a thought the other day that there is some sort of interesting design space, but I'm not sure how easy it is to tune it into the right power level. <clears throat> if you do a bunch of slivers that are also another uh, creature type, so sliver merfolk, sliver goblin, sliver zombie, um, it opens up some some doors pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I'm just. Not, I mean, I guess that's be- that's better than just straight slivers, but and I'm not sure yeah. how like you have to tune those to not be busted, right? Because well, that's the hard part yeah. is every sliver has either got to be the the line between terrible and busted is razor thin on slivers. Yeah. And and a lot uh, there are a lot of like recent keywords that have not appeared on a sliver. So I think that, that they can go down that that well pretty easily. Um, but I, I have no information that there are slivers and horizons other than people's guesswork. So um, I have a couple of sliver queens that I tried to buy list uh, for under 60. Um, six weeks ago or something though i think it was card kingdom and they they told me they didn't want them at the price that they quoted because they weren't near mint they came back they're totally near mint so now i'm holding two sliver queens so i put one up at at a mid to high price on ebay we'll see if it sells and then i'll decide what to do with the other one hey i've got one or two floating around too there you go i don't know what i'm gonna do about them so next on the list we got smothering tithe foils a card we've talked about a few different times uh, a lot of the mtg price pro traders were in on this closer to 10 to 12 a lot of the a lot of the people that have got their connections set up in europe were bringing them over by the boatload and have already offloaded quite a few to buy lists um but here we see the foils going from 20 to 33 and i don't think this is the end i think this ends up as i've said in the past uh you know 35 40 45 50 dollar foil give it enough time um and what i think is interesting with this card is that unlike something like anointed procession from amonkhet it has taken this foil a lot less time to take off so this card is only a few months old right this is not a guilds of ravnica card this is a ravnica allegiance card and because it was spotted right up front as being kind of a uh, a top tier staple for edh um it went off like a rocket ship like people did not hold off the usual year to go in on these. And I don't think it was players um, for the most part driving the foils up. I think it was speculators taking uh, a large percent of the percentage of the inventory, but the underlying demand because of the strength of the card in the format, and you've got command zone and everybody else featuring it here, there and everywhere. Um, we'll keep it high. And, you know, I don't think we're going to see significant retraces on this because everybody's already, you know, putting their pennies aside for um, war of the spark there's going to be Mythic Edition 3, we now know, just as we predicted. Um, it's probably going to be bonkers. Uh, and then we've got Modern Horizons right after that. So there's plenty of like wallet drain coming up for Magic players. And so, you know, I think we have hit peak supply for Ravnica Legion stuff. Okay, so I caught you say something there. You said we have confirmed Mythic Edition 3, but have we? Yep, because the... From- because the uh, the leak that came out the other day with the 10 mm. planeswalkers on it included uh, a Gideon that was clearly the mythic edition version, not the set version. 
I, I saw that as well. I wasn't exactly sure if you were going to acknowledge that on cast or not. I forgot well, to ask you beforehand. It, but I saw the same thing, right? The Gideon was in the Mythic Edition frame. All that stuff is up on mythic spec, mythicspoiler.com and everywhere else. As far as I'm concerned, the cat is out of the bag. Like, I get that it yeah. sucks for the you know people that were assigned these spoilers. I mean, sorry, assigned these previews um, that, that leaks happened, but... I, I saw leak six weeks ago and kept my mouth shut. So <laughs> once the stuff hits the streets and it's widely disseminated, um, we can, you know, it, people are already talking about the mythic edition. So it's a done deal. Well, yeah, right, right. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, um, and I, and I also think it's, anyway. I, I think it's a little strange. The people that are so hardcore about fighting against spoilers. Like, yeah, I, I I like to be surprised. I understand that you might like to be surprised. But when somebody reveals like the new iPhone details six months early, nobody's like bitching and screaming about it. Like people are happy to have the information because you get to make more decisions. Like, um, and, and I want to support the content creators. And I think that revealing stuff way, way early is not is net negative. I agree with that that much. Um, but once the cat is fully out of the bag, it's out of the bag. Pretending that it's not is just silly. That I also agree with. I feel roughly the same way about Wizards not sharing information about, uh, not sharing stats from MTGO dailies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure everybody at Goldfish agrees good. with you. The um, Moving right along on this list, Burgeoning Foils, which was your pick two weeks ago at $20, moving from 25 to 43 on TCG Player near Mint Low. Man, was it only two weeks ago? That seems so recent, but there it is, 20 to 40. Jeez. Um, yeah, that was a good pick then. It's the worst pick now. It's a good time to sell. <laughs> yep. About. I don't like it at 43, so it's got to be a sell. Yep. Um, following burgeoning is a counterspell from the Jace deck, the Jace Spellbook deck, which we haven't seen a second one of those. Was that 2018? Oh, yeah, it was, was, that, it was last year, out? so we should get another one this year. Okay, so it hasn't been more than a year. Um, the Fool's Foil Counterspell, 17 to 30. People are definitely hoping Counterspell is going to be in Horizons, which all things considered isn't an unfair goal. Um, at this point, I think it's it's safe to assume that you could print Counterspell in Horizons and it wouldn't be over the top. We've seen so many variations on two mana Counterspells in the format, and they're all fine. That I don't think that li- literal Counterspell is going to be an issue. Uh I would be happy to sell. Uh, well, I don't know. Do you sell these ahead of the... I guess at this point, you hold them if you have them. Because if it does show up in Horizons, you can probably get up to maybe $40, $50 if you're lucky. Um, and if it's not in Horizons, you it might not retrace immediately. You might be able to sneak out at, at 30 maybe 25 I already sold it at a full playset for 128 I believe, that I was in on at 24 Whew. People are really hoping that's going to be in. in. <laughs> and they look nice. Like they, once I got them in hand, I was like, yeah, I could see these being like somebody's choice. Like we talked, when we first flagged these, we talked about how there's maybe five versions that are not like alpha or beta um, that people might choose to make their go-to standard and modern. Um, I bought some of the non-foils too. I haven't tried selling them yet. Uh, probably they're a buy list play because I had, I have like 20 of them or something and if I'm lucky, they get to six or seven. Um, so, but the foils were easy breezy. Like I think it took all of 48 hours for them to sell once I posted them. 
<laughs> it's not long. No. Um, speaking of counter spells, Spell Pierce from the Masterpiece Invocation series, 70 to 125. Um, looks like uh, standard use? These are showing up in standard? Yeah, Spell Pierce isn't standard right now, right? It was an excellent card. Okay. Uh, but I don't actually have a good explanation for what happened here, it, other than that stock got low and somebody decided to snap up the last set of copies. I just don't know what their thesis was. Because, yeah, this sees occasional play in modern. Maybe you can argue this is a cube card. It is one of the most beautiful invocations. I have six of them in front of me right now that I need to post tonight because I'm not going to wait to see what happens here. Um, and the the foiled art with the flames in the background and Kefnet casting the blue spell in the foreground is stunning. Like it's, it's one of the better looking invocations and that's from somebody who hates these things. Um, however, I, I, I don't know why the drain was on here. What the, what the logic was. All I know is I'm going to post them at like 80 bucks on eBay and see if they move. Well, this could be, could be the start of the movement on invocations i mean maybe it took a while i mean i'm not saying it is right i'm just saying it's a possibility i I think what it's more likely is that people routinely are looking at box stoppers masterpieces inventions expeditions and when they smell something that looks like it's at the tipping point since that principle is you know echoing through the mtg finance sphere um and is really just the same thing other people have said for years and put in a different cup um you know, if something is really low inventory, then people are going to make a move on it. Um, and some of it is semi-random and it's not always the best thought out. It, I mean, this kind of thing can also happen just because some random investor, I mean, not investor, uh, collector grabs some. There can just be mm-hmm. somebody who loves this card and is buying a couple per week. You have no idea how crazy a magic player can be until you've actually seen the binder full of like 300. Final fortune or yeah, whatever. 300 7th edition final fortune foils or whatever. I'm sure that guy is getting tired of being referenced on here. <laughs> All right. So next on the list, Selvala Explorer returned conspiracy version foils going from 1850 to 33 on the back of EDH demand. Um, noticed that the non-foils don't buy list for anything yet. So there's a massive gap. I think it's like a 20 times multiplier or something. Um, foil to non-foil on this, which I thought was interesting. Um, next on the list, Etherflux Reservoir foils, which was called on here a couple times just a short while ago and then several months back, $10 to $18. Um, always a good way to kill people in EDH, a whole bit, bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, and tell you, colorless or artifact artifact EDH foil staples, not really much reason to hold back. Um, they all seem to do pretty well, given not too much time. I agree with you. Foil, I mean, you just have to look at the numbers on EDA track and compare like how many cards a really popular two color deck is or how many decks a really popular two color card is in versus how many decks a mildly popular artifact are in. And it's like staggering. It's like the, you know, the the second most popular multicolor card is as popular as like the 34th most popular artifact. Um the flexibility is just nuts. So I tried and it's, you know, it's easy to, to skip them because they're not as powerful on the surface. A lot of the times, or they're sometimes they're a little more boring, but uh, the, the effect is obvious. I think. Well, and things like other flex, other other flex reservoir, which are not easily replaced by any other card, such a specific effect, right? The, that triggers off something that can happen in so many different ways, life gain, 
and the casting of spells. Um, and then allows you to end people if you build up enough enough life as a resource. So uh, next on the list, Mana Confluence out of Journey into Nyx. Foils going from 20 to 37. We've talked about this a couple of times in the past uh, with you uh, expressing skepticism as to whether commander players should actually be running City of Brass um, in optimal builds. Um, but we've seen both uh, you know, Judge Foil City of Brass take off in the last year. Here we have Mana Confluence doing... Uh, doing a similar dance and I gotta say if it makes all colors of mana people are going to buy it yeah I but didn't I just pick something like this like a week ago uh, yeah I did I picked Mana Confluence last week foils 20 to 40 uh, so there you go there's yeah, my, you, there it is yeah you you ate your words last week I did in a, in a, in a pivot of thesis which is always something I respect mm. Still, all right. So I'm I, I'm half eating them because I still stand by the fact that the card's not worth running, but I recognize people are going to run it. So right, it's there's some greater fool theory. Yeah, in, I, in motion I'm now. buying stock in cigarettes, essentially. <laughs> um, fo- uh, foil attracts uh, the Praetor's voice. Uh, twenty five to fifty five. This is unquestionably on the back of. War of the Spark. War of the Spark. And the pile of Planeswalkers we're getting. And attracts is the most popular Planeswalker commanders because she proliferates and puts more counters on them. And she's a bunch of colors. So people went out and bought them up. And the timing here is really good if you already own them. Because, you know, we were talking, James was saying before the cast too, like it would have been made a lot of sense to reprint Atraxa after War of the Spark, like let people get their hands on the Planeswalker cards and then a little while later dump more Traxa into the market to like let them pick those up. But they did it early. They did it early. They did the reprint beforehand. So now everyone goes and gets their Planeswalkers, decides they want to play a Traxa. Oh, well, we don't have any. And also we just reprinted it. So they're no more on the horizon for like two more years. So, you know, is $50 low? Like, is it going to climb? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough barrier, right? That's tough. Like the realistic ceiling on this floor is probably like $80 or the real, yeah, the realistic ceiling on this is probably about $80, but there is still possibly some meat on the bone. So I'm, mm, I might not be in a rush to sell here. I don't know. I don't know what I think about it yet. I've got a pile of these coming in from Europe um, in the 15 to $20 range and they will be buy listed shortly thereafter. I'm sure. Um, I would expect a Traxa to get, you know, some serious attention for three to six months and then people will be on to the next thing again. Um, and she'll stay in the top five commanders for a long, long time with all the reinforcement from War of the Spark um, and all the other stuff that's going to... Like, the thing about Jaxi is that she's that intersection of counters and planeswalkers, which is just never not going to be good in EDH. And being four colors means so much... She can run so many different tools, like four-fifths of all the cards made more than that because you include artifacts and lands and whatever. Um, end up being potentially playable in in her various builds, and there's so many different ways to build the deck. So, um, little historical context: I, I was picking these up at like five or six dollars or something in 2016, uh, early 2017. In October 15th, 2017, I buy listed 25 copies of Commander uh, 2016 Atraxa to Card Kingdom at 16.50 a piece plus their credit, so just over 20. Um, and today they are offering, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of looking how much we sold cards for three years ago. (laughs) It's scary. Yeah. It's scary. 
not the two war, years I ago. Guess. Not even two years ago. Year and a half. Um, so today, for the same card, they are offering forty two ninety. So all that stuff coming, all those copies coming in from Europe that I have bought back at pretty much the the price that I sold them to Card Kingdom for, um, will now be offloaded to Card Kingdom again at forty two ninety. <laughs> and in the interim, you got to I got to put that money to work. So I guess that's that's fine. Um, but it's still it always stings just a little where you feel where you're like you know from six to sixteen fifty plus was like six to twenty and that's just awesome so you do it you're not thinking about fifty you didn't know where the spark was coming and then a year fast forward a year and a half and you're like wow twenty five by fifty is a nice number uh yeah that is a very pleasant outcome there for you for sure um jeez it's a chunk of change. Now, I would really like uh, Yidris to go. Yeah. I bought a bunch of those. Uh, so the one I, I buy listed recently was Brea's. Mm-hmm. Fairly similar. And I'm a little worried that there's actually quite a lot of like Brea reinforcement in War of the Spark that we've seen as well. Um, between various Tezzerits that we've gotten in the last year. Like there's so many te- like Tezzerits with interlocking uh, combo pieces built into them. Lots of Thopter support coming out of the Kaladesh block. Um and, you know, Bray has got a lot of tools to work with as well. And she's also a top five commander. Um, so it's po- entirely possible I was early on those as well. Uh, I mean, really, yeah, I have some Brea's floating around too. It's, I don't know, early. What's early? I, you know, I still like to to make my profit and move, right? Like, and roll And roll it over a few more times. That's the key, right? Like, it's not, it's... If you sell something a year ago and from then till now it's up 40%, the question is, could you have rolled it over for 43 other times <laughs> in the interim? If you are a kickback armchair MTG financier where you're basically only dabbling here and there and you mostly treat it as entertainment, then you know you probably don't need to be in a rush to sell stuff like that. If you're somebody who is very active and you are rolling over on a regular basis, you bought 100 Mox Ambers, you flipped them for plus 200% inside a month. You rolled that over into Atraxes. Now you're doubling up on those. That's a different story because that person has nothing to fear from, you know, being out early um, because you're taking huge chunks of ROI, compressing them into a short time period. And then your annualized ROI is significantly better than if you had just sat on stuff. But right. you also and have it, that many it, more opportunities to get it wrong because you're only, yeah. you're only as good as the last set of specs. Yeah, it's a lot of work, a lot of work to manage all of it. And to, and then you have to be right like every time. And if you're ever wrong, it just grinds to a halt. And then you're stuck like, do I wait or do I eat a 10% loss trying to get rid of this stuff so that I can try again type of thing? So, you know, that can be tough too. Uh, right. Where so are wrapping we? Wrapping up this list, we've got Aether Snap from Darksteel. Foils going from 7 to 20. This is on the idea that people are going to cast this in EDH to take all the counters off Planeswalkers. Uh, I think that's a horrible idea because pre-sideboarding in EDH is a horrible idea. And unless you know your meta runs a whole bunch of Planeswalker decks, um, other snap foils are probably not what you want to be casting. But that doesn't mean that they didn't make it. Yeah, I also agree. I mean, it's cute with uh, Dark Depths was the old combo. But Mm -hmm. I yeah, pre-sideboarding isn't good. You know, there is a reason to play cards that are good, that are also good against Planeswalker walkers but i'm not putting in cards specifically to that end um following right. on some ridiculous plays <clears throat> this is one that james <laughs> i am 
I am embarrassed to say I saw percolating in our Discord. Uh, mycosynth lattice foils out of dark steel, 35 to 100. Uh, because with the, oh God, with the new Karn, you, Karn the right, Great you play Creator. Karn, which turns awesome off the name. activated abilities of all your opponent's artifacts. And then you play Mycosynth Lattice, which makes all their cards artifacts. And now all of their, none of their uh, cards can do anything. Those of you who are newer to magic may not be familiar with Mycosynth Lattice. And the fact that like once every four sets, some card comes out that makes Mycosynth Lattice busted and you can do stupid crap with it. Uh, Mycos and Lattice has been a stupid, silly combo piece since it was the day it was printed. People at kitchen tables know it. People in EDH know it. Everybody knows it. It's still an expensive artifact that's part of a two-card combo that mostly works. Uh, the addition of Karn doesn't uh, really change that. So, if uh, so, no, no. So, so here's I, so here's the counter logic, and and, I, and get me and don't get me wrong. I don't think this mm. is like about to upset the modern Apple Card or anything. And I was happily selling out of my uh, Japanese Mycosynth lattices from Battlebond, um, which easily covered off like a third of each box um, last night when I sold them for thirty a piece or whatever. Um, the thing that Karn gives you is that he can pull the Microsynth Lattice from your sideboard. So that's not cluttering, cluttering up your main deck where it may not have any other relevant synergies. So because Karn's minus two lets you choose an artifact from you own from outside the game, you can just, you're only sacrificing a sideboard slot to set up the combo. And Tron doesn't give a shit that Microsynth Lattice is a six casting cost card because they can easily cast that. So maybe you know, they're in certain situations that just might shut down the opponent. Well, I will grant you all of that. Here's my concern. How many copies does that deck want? Yep. That's fair. One. So it's like, you know, it's, you're, you're not going to jam four Mycosynth Lattice and four Karns in a deck and call it a day. Like it's, I mean, I don't know. Crazier I mean, things have happened. People yeah, will do it. Gonna, but like, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, when you put it that way, like, I don't know what the other combos are. Like, I guess you have like liquid metal coating and stuff that you can tracks into, is which it, is awful because you you can't. You have to do it before they use it. But you can like vandal blast it. Or you have to like. There, there's definitely it. some kind of janky deck there that Saffron's going to run, which has all existed. Which has all existed. So, but now they've got Karn to go get combo pieces out of the board. Like, it, you can toolbox with mm. Karn. So there is something which returns to the problem, which returns to you have to have you only need one. Yeah, yeah. You only need one. So I'm not arguing that people should be investing in this card. It's a sell for sure, hard sell. Um, but we're just explaining the logic. So the dark steel foils, sure. the original is going for thirty five to one hundred. So you get whatever you can there. I would be happy to sell in the say sixty to eighty dollar range. Um, and then the battle bond and dark steel versions went from nine and 10 respectively to in theory 40. And I did sell, uh, near 30. So even that is fantastic. Cause if you bought battle bond boxes or have a couple of these sitting in your artifact binder or whatever, that's, I, I love it when some card goes from nothing to something and just basically pays for a big chunk of a box. That's just the greatest feeling. That's uh, a nice little bonus. Yes, if you have all that sealed product sitting around. I feel the same way about my 10,000 bulk rares, which I have gotten. I don't get to go to the well on that as often as I used to, but that was always fun when something spikes and you're like, ooh, I got to go dig out some garbage and make it into a lot of money. Yeah, hardened scales type stuff. Yeah. The um, Anyway, the, the Karn uh, 
pretty is a pretty cool card um, and probably better than Karn Scion of Urza. The fact that we have two forecasting cost Karns now is also not nothing. Um, and there are there are probably a whole bunch more combo pieces possible given how open-ended his synergy is. And he's like, I'll put it this way. Foils of this card are going to end up on our list at some point, right? Uh, somewhere, some list probably. Because, because every, because every artifact deck in EDH is going to want this card. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I have, wait, I have to go look them up again. Hold on. Hi. How how does outside the game work in EDH where you don't have a side? Uh, whatever you want. Is that just yeah, outside just the game? anything? It's yeah. whatever you want. Oh, that's busted. That's, I mean, it depends on your busted. group, right? Some groups will say no. It has to be. Uh, you have to have like a defined sideboard, or they'll say like, okay, if you're going to play card in your deck, you need to come with like a ten or fifteen card sideboard, quote unquote. And other groups, more casual groups, will just say it's any card in the house. Like. <laughs> You know, you can go grab it out of your train but trade binder. Uh, I mean, he turns an artifact into a creature, right? Uh, and then the bottom ability is uh, the bottom ability is fetch, and you can't. Yeah, I mean, you only play him as a tutor. I think like his top ability is useful and will occasionally be extremely annoying, but is not enough. I mean, nobody's playing rest in peace in EDH for the most part, even if it was one sided. And his middle ability is useless. Uh, so you're mostly just playing him as a as a tutor for artifacts that has a little bit of additional upside. So some decks will want it for sure. But I mean, just because you're playing Brea, it doesn't mean Karn's worth it. Unless, unless you I think want I might the have this. Ability. I think I might have this wrong, though. Living Wish is only in 180 decks reported on EDH Rec. Does that not suggest that almost nobody is well, playing the sideboard? I, like cards that uh, I mean, that's a consideration, game? yeah. I don't know... You know, you can talk about, like, whatever the official rules are. Well, uh, I mean, hold on. Oh, it's on EDH track. I, I'll put it to you this way. I don't I don't remember ever playing EDH and seeing somebody pull well, how, from outside the game. How many so cards are there? How many cards are there that do EDH. that, right? Like, it's not. Yeah, but that's, well, like, that's, wishes, right? that's it. They're so useful, you would eh, think. I guess people just think them. they're obnoxious or, you know, for whatever, for whatever reason. Like, don't they're... I don't know exactly off the top of my head how the official rules of EDH handle it. I know if you play one of these cards in your local game for fun with your friends, nobody's going to care, right? Like, people will do that if they want to. It's just apparently not that many people do. Also, the problem with Living Wish is you don't get to put the cool creature in your deck. I guess you can play, like, Hate Bears in your deck, right, and fetch for those. Living Wish is, like, really situational. But that starts to feel very cutthroaty and not, like, fun. I don't know. I would have expected Living Wish to be in a couple more decks, honestly. Hmm. It from what I can see, I'm just looking at some like forum posts and threads on like MTG Salvation and the like. It looks like the majority of players are either not supporting it or are not in favor of it. So that certainly gives me pause as to whether yeah. Karn is actually um, all that useful. However, maybe the rest of his text is still good enough. Like activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated. That turns everybody's mana vault, mana crypt, all their mana rocks off. Yeah, but that's just rest in peace or uh Sony silence, but you can just play Sony silence for two. No, like that no, no, ability no, no. that act already exists. Doesn't Sony silence allow for mana abilities? Uh, no, I don't think so. Cause that shuts off uh, dark steel. Citadel. that's like half the point. 
Yeah, activated no. abilities of artifacts can't be activated. Yeah, you're right. Um, so no, that's that's not one side. That is one sided, which means you can't run your own stones. But is it worth running zero artifact stones for the games where you draw your rest in peace mm. or Sony Silence? I'm going to call it rest in peace every time. I've done that many times. I guess I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty cool on Karn uh, in EDH. That's that's the extent of my thought here. But Stony, like you said, Stony Silence turns off everybody's mana rocks. Karn only turns off their mana rocks. Yeah, 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 for sure. But I'm, but like, is that's a, that's a lot. That's like stone raining three times on everybody's board, but yours. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. But on is a, it worth on a four on a four, four on a card slot? Well, yeah, but then yeah. his plus one is until your next turn up to one target non-creature artifact creature with power and toughness equal to its mana cost, blah, blah, blah. Useless. Useless. Absolutely useless. No, like, people will activate it, but it's useless. I, I, you could start the game with an emblem in play that let you do that, and it would barely be right, Fair enough. I can see the point. Um, bottled Cloister from Ravnica, 225 to 7. This is being used in the Vigilis, uh control decks in Modern, I believe. Um, I think as a one of, so definitely something I would be selling into that because who knows for how long uh, that is uh, a thing. Liliana. Yeah, Bottle Cloister, I was just say Bottle Cloister has popped up in the Lantern List decks a couple times now over the last several months, but it's always just as a one of and it's a Werve Invention target. And I agree. I remember even mentioning it, it might have been on this cast that I was like, I saw it the first time, like, uh, I want this to be a spec, but people are only ever going to run one and it's going to be scattered and it's just not worth it. So I would sell real fast yeah, if you have any. And it showed up on this list as the foils the first time, which is usually the way it goes. Um, next on the list, Liliana Untouched by Death from Corset 2019. Non-foils going from 5 to 15 or so for 200% plus gain. Um, that's all on the back of the zombie theme in War of the Spark and the assumption that there is going to be opportunity to build around uh, the zombie-specific uh, Liliana abilities from the Corset. And it didn't take too long for the copies to drain because those late summer sets aren't opened as much. Uh, so the copies weren't particularly deep to begin with, even though the card was largely unused up till this point. I also hate this as a pick. Um, I mean, if you have them, sell them instantly. But like, I guess, why are you... Exp- if you're buying this... Be- there are two reasons you could have bought Liliana. You could have looked at it and said, people are going to think Liliana is good. I'm going to try and grab them and sell them to people who want to spec on it, in which case you're not moving any faster than the people who think it's going to be good are. Or you're buying it because you think it's going to be good in standard and you want to sell the people who need it for standard. Except that the card rotates in October and we're walking into the summer, which is like the least, the le- lowest amount of card sales basically in the ma- annual annually like summer is just rough for magic sales people go do other things and you're gonna try and sell this card to people when it's rotating in three months to play standard at fnm i mean how many standard gps are near people at this point ah it's just bad just don't buy cards in april they're rotating in october for standard play generally i agree with you um, that that's certainly more risky. I'm not sure I agree with the time compression that's going on in that argument. Um, it's not three months, it's six months. And certainly summer is slower, but we're only April 2nd here. We've got all of April, May, June before the summer doldrums really kick in. And there's... Yeah, but the card has to be, the card has to be more, more good and then people have sure, to need true. it. And, and that's a whole different topic. But 
there is a deck building, I think a very popular standard forthcoming. There, War of the Spark is going to kick off a lot of deck building because it's going to be a fairly unique format. Tons of Planeswalkers all over the place. Um, and I think, I think it'll be popular. Now, is Liliana good in that format? I have no idea. I mean, we, we've only seen a handful of Amass cards yet. Um, they're not go wide. They're go tall. So it's a little weird because that's not quite what you want to be doing with your with your zombies usually. But um, bottom line is I'm totally on board with you that this is a sell. <laughs> if you if you got, the, yeah, if you got these be, at five, you're selling them north of 10 and being happy. And it'd be one thing if you said, okay, we have this card in standard that does the thing. It's three mana. You found that our guardian exists. And then you see Sahili in <laughs> War of the Spark and you go, Oh damn, that is a nutso two card combo right there. That's going to be legal and standard. All right, this is going to be bonkers, right? That's a very different scenario from, oh, there are some zombies or whatever. And Lilian is good with those zombies, right? Like that, that synergy is like fine, but it's not two card combo that ends the game. So it's not even like you can really bank on it being good. You're hoping it gets good and hoping that you can sell it quick enough. Like, it's not that it's 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 definitely one of the weakest specs that we've talked about in a while. And also, there's just so much other things you can be doing. Don't waste your time on it. And I'm talking to the Discord because this is another card that I saw our Discord chatting about. And, uh, I you know, I, I meant to tell you, I forgot to mention this. I have seen a couple comments and questions and discussion come up that reminds me that you and I have been at this for a long time. I've been writing for MTG Price for like five years now or something like that and doing this type of stuff for longer. Um, and I don't remember what your timeline is like, but I know it's quite long as well. Yeah. But not everyone has done this as long as I have. And, you know, you and I have been a part of the maturation and the evolution of this um, industry, so to say. Uh, and we are used to communicating with other people that have been through a lot of it as well. But not everyone has. A lot of people are newer to this and haven't gone through and digested all of the old articles, the stuff that we all read and learned and like went, oh, yeah, and kind of cut our teeth on like actually going through rotations and getting stuck with cards. So it occurs to me that a lot of the stuff that we sort of take for granted now, the knowledge that we've built up over the years, not everyone that listens to us has. So like we should, it almost feels like we need to make more of a point to go back to the basics occasionally, because even though people are, have joined as a pro trader, right? They're willing to get into this and willing to, to put the money down to, to work with it. Uh, don't have that, that history with them and things like don't buy cards that are rotating in four months to try and sell them for a standard that you don't know about might not have gotten to them yet. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, and one of the things that we do for new pro traders is we have a um, like MTG finance encyclopedia, like a guide that we put together. It's like 80 or 100 pages of classic articles from MTG price that's available as a PDF for free when you sign up as a pro trader. Um, and I've been doling that out to people where appropriate. And I also linked to it uh, in the discord channel um, for the podcast um, or in the article archive, I guess it was. Um but yeah, I see newer MTG finance writers all the time going like one of the things that they tend to do when they are starting out um, as writers is go to that well and try to write the like intro to MTG finance, thinking that they're the first ones that it's going to like cast 
that's going to usher a whole new wave of people into this niche part of the hobby, you know, for the first time gathering all the relevant thoughts. And it's like, dude, that article has been written 17 times already. All of us have written it at one point or another from one angle or another. There are classic episodes of Brainstorm Brewery from years ago and articles that you wrote or Jason wrote or whoever from, you know, even some good stuff from SIG along the way, as much as I give him shit on Twitter, um, that people should be aware of. And we should really be like, we should probably pull together in the like website overhaul this year, um, a list of like classic, like evergreen uh, articles. Because some articles, you know, age better than others. Like what you should pick from Journey into Nix or something is is more of a like historical oddity at this point, like looking at an old Scry magazine. Then it would be super useful in terms of your day-to-day MTG financing. But there's a lot of stuff like, uh, what was the name? I don't know what the name of the article was, but one of the ones of yours that I see people reference the most over time um, was predated my... Uh, my spec quadruple, yes, then all yes, I yes, made yes, was yes. 25 cents, I think. That's the one. Um, Cliff seems to be a big fan of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, predates my involvement in MTG price, but I had, I had, I've seen it mentioned many times. And there are probably 10 or 15 articles by various people that fall in the same like category of evergreen status. Anyway, yeah. uh, it's going to be, you're not allowed to chat in discord until you've read like our selection of seven articles. Well, I'll say this thing about Liliana. Liliana is the kind of thing where you need to get in and out fast. So it's not the kind of thing I would be buying vast quantities of in Europe unless I had the buy list lined up. And this is one of those cases where the buy list has not seen the demand meet the speculation yet. And so the buy list has not caught up. And that's that's a really good <laughs> signal to pay attention to is, you know, something like Atraxa, the buy lists are sky high. Why? Because it's obvious that people that a fresh group of people are going to consider playing Atraxa and Commander with all these new planeswalkers to fool around with um, and proliferate coming back as a mechanic. Right. Um, it's all, it's also reasonable that those buy lists are only going to, if they go up on Liliana, it may only go up for a Saturday afternoon. As, as right? happened it initially, be, with it could be barely a weekend. Right. As the same thing that happened with Kaya the first time she spiked on the buy list. Right, right, right. Um, right. So your window yeah. might be really narrow. So in those in cases like that, you got to, and especially in a very spec rich season as we are in right now. It's all about like there's a lot of ideas that are getting thrown out there in our discord. And I think it's important that we keep doing what we've been doing, which is like debunking as many as <laughs> debunking as many as we can as they fly through. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody of saying, oh, like there's a hot new card, maybe this and this and maybe that. And then it behooves everybody to then like logic check that and say, yeah, but, you know, um, Karn looked really great to me until I realized that maybe people don't allow sideboards in EDH. So lesson learned. All right, I will stop you lying about Liliana for now. Uh, let's move on to Astral Slide foils out of Onslaught, three to ten dollars. People are hoping cycling comes back in Modern Horizons, and Astral Slide was an awesome cycling deck, a fan favorite for sure. Um, uh, back when on, uh, cycling was in standard in the Onslaught era, this is the one where every time you cycle a card, you can pay money to blink creatures. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't think this would matter in modern at all but people are shooting for onslaught foils which i don't hate they were three dollars the thing um, the thing that you're looking for is that you get slide and rift and the onslaught cycling lands that cycle for one mana that might be enough to make cycling decks a real thing in modern because you'd have a preponderance of one mana cyclers which could do a lot of work yeah i mean i agree that's a lot i don't know like you know, if you have Astral Slide, what is your ultimate payoff? I don't know. I'm not going to 
theory craft too much about it. I don't, I didn't need it. At three. And even if, even if Astro Slide is in the board, is it more of a one or two of for specific matchups? Like the, the only reason that you want it on your side is if you have creatures that you want to repeatedly blink. But I suspect that the, if there's a cycling deck in modern that would take off, it would be more combo-y um, or involve living end as one already does, or um, might be built around lightning rift as opposed to Astro Slide. I mean, really, that's a good point. It's like, oh, they printed uh, Astro Slide. Now when I cycle cards, I can blink stuff. Uh-huh. Or you could cycle stuff and flip the graveyard and battlefield. Like, you realize yeah. that you can just play cycling cards and make Living End more consistent. So it's one of those things where people remember it being awesome, but the fact of the matter is that the thing that exists in Modern is probably just already faster and better. And and is Living End even in need of many more one-mana cyclers? I mean, the, the current... I don't even think... The current version they, already runs enough of yeah they don't even play all of them at this point i don't think or if they do they play exactly all of them and nothing more because you have uh whatchamacallit desert saradon and architects of will yeah. and uh all the stuff that you curator of mysteries or something like all the stuff you got from amon cat block basically and that one that you pay the life for whose name i don't remember mm-hmm. street rave yeah, yeah that guy yeah the one i called recently all right so yeah. Um, when we talked about Mycocentralatis, uh, it was the foils that went, and then both of the regular versions, Insurrection. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, what card? <laughs> Mycocentralatis. Lattice? Lattice. Lattice. I'm with you. <laughs> there is the French Canadian. <laughs> Lattissima. <laughs> I'm doing Italian. All right. Insurrection foils from Onslaught, 17 to 6. Um, that was my pick two weeks ago. Uh, so that one paid off. Um, between counterings and insurrections and kayas lots of good stuff going on uh pyromancer ascension was the other big winner this week zendikar and mm17 versions going from like two dollars to a dollar fifty up to like eight bucks a piece that's because it's the new like two to three of in the phoenix builds in modern including one of the top four, four finishers at the most the most recent uh big modern event the gp calgary that took place this weekend um, which was overshadowed heavily by the Mythic Invitational. Uh, yeah, that Invitational, I honestly, I saw that Calgary was on our uh, list for metagame we can review and didn't even realize that it had happened. Like, yeah. I don't think I heard a single person mention that event. So the final card on the list this week is Counterspell from 7th edition. The foil is going from 30 to 140. Again, people looking to lock down uh, cooler versions of Counterspell on the the assumption that we are getting it in Modern Horizons, which is yet to be proven true, but seems like it makes a lot of sense. Here's part of my logic for this that I'm not sure we touched on yet. Um, there are so many printings of Counterspell out there that they can print it as the buy a box. And they told us that the buy a box is a good blue card. Um, they can print a cool one as the buy a box and not worry about it. It gets rid of the buy a box problem because this is the first time we're getting a reprint buy a box. And so they get to go, ah, ha, ha. Now you can't tell us there's no availability because there's a bajillion cheap copies of Counterspell. But if you want the super cool one, you got to buy the box at your local LGS. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that, can... all, that all hangs together nicely. Yeah, that that would work. That would be a reasonable use of the buy a box slot. Although, isn't their whole point? We're talking about the buy a box slot for Horizons, correct? Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, really, it doesn't really matter what they do with the buy a box slot there. Um, well, for instance, I don't. Let, let's well, wait, say wait, wait can they do that? Because that's already. Le- oh no, I guess it's not legal in modern. They could get away with it. Yeah, it's not legal in modern. 
Um, so here's the thing is that um, if it was Force of Will, here's why I'm pretty sure Force of Will is not in the set and it is Counterspell, because the buy a box works perfectly with Counterspell. It'll be like a $10, $15, maybe $20 Counterspell if the art's really great. Um, but there's tons of alternatives, so nobody can bitch. But if it was Force of Will and it was good, it's going to be ridiculous money. Like, it'll be a $100 card. So that means the Horizons boxes will be insane. Like, sold out everywhere, all over the place. And I don't think that's what they're going to do. That that doesn't really help them with the whole buy a box causing problems scenario that they were trying to dodge. Are they? Are people thinking it's Force Will is going to be a buy a box well, the, card? The discussion, we know it's a blue card. And the assumption is blue is going to get reinforced in modern with some kind of a good counter spell. So your options are days, force of will, counter spell, maybe arcane denial, head of alliances. But counter spell just seems to make the most sense. Yeah. People feel that it's going to be strong, not busted. The power level of modern is high enough now that counter spell works just fine. Um, gives blue decks another option. They already run logic knot. Not even that clear, like how much of an upgrade Counterspell is over Logic, not clearly it is one, but like, is that going to shift modern in any particular direction? Probably not. So I think my money is on Counterspell at this point. I, I think it makes more sense than the other options. I agree with you. Pardon me. <clears throat> I agree with you. All right. So let's move on to the part everybody's here for cards to watch. People want to hear what we think is going to go up in the near to mid future. That offends me that this is what everyone um, comes for. Why don't they come for our witty banter and me laughing at you saying Latif? Our sparkling, sparkling conversation. All right, what do you got for us? So the first one that occurs to me as likely to keep marching along is Queen Marquesa. Um, Non-foils I'm talking about at a conspiracy, uh, take the crown. She's already at 20 bucks, um, but I have a feeling that she has a pretty good chance of getting to 30 long before she sees a reprint. The the reprint docket is so backed up at this point that the odds of any given uh, car, niche spiked card for EDH seeing a reprint is just low, low, low. Um, and foils of this card are already like $120 or something. So the gap is wide and likely to close. And there are like nine listings or something on TCG Player ranging from 20 to 30. It's not going to take very much for this to tip up over... Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if it's. Um, let's see, what did you say? I mean, if if inventory is definitely low, then I think it's a good position. I don't think there was ever any doubt that this is the type of card that just slowly creeps on up. Um, it's just a question of opportunity cost. You know, you can if you could have gotten these at a dollar, was it worth grabbing them and having to wait a year for them? But now, if we're talking about them already being up towards twenty and supply getting really low that's a better position because now you can get in and let them hop to 30, 35 and then get out within a couple months. So, uh, you know, if that inventory has been draining, if the price has been moving up and we're looking at short supply, then I think it's a, a pretty nice little short-term mover. And it's like, it's no smothering tithe in EDH. This is a moderate play pattern there. Um, a few thousand decks reported on EDH rec. So maybe you got 10, 15, 20,000 potential players that might think about running it in North America. Um, but just the, on the supply side, this is just a clear tipping point card that's only going to take 20, 30, 40 copies drained out of the market and it'll push up again. Right. Yep. Don't disagree. Um, my second card, my, my first card this week is uh, Garrick Apex Predator. 
currently, you can grab foils of Garrick Apex Predator for about $24. Um, this is the M15 one. He's, uh, he's a big boy. He's like seven mana. Uh, his plus one is destroy a planeswalker. Uh, but he's a bunch of other useful abilities, too. This was from their their storyline around that time period where he was hunting Liliana and he was like hunting you. They had some tie in where like you were a planeswalker type of deal. Uh, in any case, he's in about 4,000 EDH rec decks. So he's not in a ton of decks, but it's, you know, it's a number. People definitely play the card. Um, obviously with War of the Spark, people are going to be playing a lot more planeswalkers, which is, and I want to highlight where the, how this is a little bit different from like Aether Stamp, which we talked about earlier. People are going to be playing more planeswalkers, which means you're more likely to want to put Apex Predator in your deck because you're adding Planeswalkers and you're adding support for walkers. So he kind of fits what else you might be doing. And also, he's very useful at doing things to your opponents anyways. And now he just gets a little bit better. So there might be a draw to pick up, to, to use him a little bit more because he's better supported by your deck or whatever deck you might build. And also looks a little bit better when all of your friends are bringing new decks with different planeswalkers in them uh another interesting thing here is there's a, a reasonably tight gap on the non-foils and foils it's like the cheapest foil copy i think is 24 bucks and the cheapest non-foil is like 13 or 14 and then it jumps up into the 16s pretty quick which means you're getting below a 2x multiplier which is generally a good place to start looking at foils especially when they're this old because magic 2015 would have been printed in 24 it would have been in 2015. It's like four or five years old now. Um, so you've got a really cool card designed to kill planeswalkers. Going to be some more attention paid to them. Supply is getting lowish. Uh, tight, tight gap on the non-foils and foils. I think you're probably likely to see him jump up towards 40 or 50 for those foils. Yep. I think that makes perfect sense. We know we're not getting him in War of the Spark. Uh, as much as people wanted him to show up and bury an axe in Bolas's face, that seems like one of the least likely options in terms of how this narrative resolves itself. Um, and he's good both in Atraxa and against Atraxa. Uh, in EDH, a seven casting cost card is effectively a five casting cost card or something because you have so many powerful mana rocks boosting your mana production. So yeah, I like this one. This fits right in with the other handful of Planeswalker foils we've called out in the last several weeks that are likely to drain out of the market in a hurry. Yeah, and I mean, if you look across the board, you're seeing a bunch of different walkers with a lot of attention being paid on them elsewhere as well. So really just planeswalkers in general are exciting yeah. today. And the thing about the uncommon walkers uh, in War of the Spark is they have very limited abilities. They're very narrow. Um, so they don't do a good job of replacing for something like Garrick Apex Predator, which is a toolbox card at a higher casting cost. So some of those lower cast cost walkers might slip into your deck, depending on you know what deck it is. And we'll talk about some of the the ones that have jumped out at us in a minute. Um, but I haven't seen anything yet from War of the Spark that that would slot in competitively against Garrick. No, no, there's I mean, there's nothing. I mean, what would that even be like? Garrick, Vraska, Garrick, Apex, well, Predator, Predator. Well, like the closest thing, the, the closest thing, the, the closest thing is the Bolas, right? Um, which has similarly nasty <laughs> abilities, um, but is in a totally different color set. Like Bolas is obviously Grixis, um, so doesn't get played in the tracks of Super Friends. He has to be played in some other brew. 
so not a lot of overlap there. Uh, so I like it for sure. Um, I have a similar, a card that's at a similar tipping point um, as foretold foils. We've talked about a couple times in the past. It's We first probably flagged them on cards to watch uh, during Amonkhet block um, as something that was going to become a thing. And we talked about how we... We were holding a bunch of the free spells, and this might this could end up being our liberator. And indeed, it sold a bunch of free spells. I've totally sold Restore Balance Foils, Japanese Foils, Wheel of Fates, um, and Living Ends. Uh, in fact, I have very few of any of those still available. Um, Ancestral Vision got hammered into the ground with its Iconic Masters printing and might even be a spec um, in the near future uh, based on one of the cards that we saw revealed today. Um, and stuff like Electrodominance, which has already been putting pressure on it. Um, but the As We're Told foils are currently sitting at about $22, $23, depending on where you buy them. You can use um, the uh, Finance 5 coupon code at Cool Stuff Inc. to go after them, um, or use coupons and sales at various other venues to you know see how close to 20 you can get with that number. I think these are going to post up in a hurry to 40, like somewhere in definitely inside three to six months. Uh, as we're told, foils will just tip up into the 40 to 50 range and sit there until they get a reprint. It definitely feels like as we're told is just so close and it's been so close for a while now. And it's just, I don't, we don't know what the formula is going to be that pushes it over the edge, but there's, there's gotta be something, right? Like it's gotta be something close. I, I'm still holding most of the foils I picked up in the 12 to 14 range. Um, GP Cleveland, I picked up a crimped, as Ooh. we're told, foil for 18 um, that I felt pretty good about. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I could see definitely 30 is on the horizon and 40 is not going to be much further off from there. There's only nine listings on TCG Player and amongst the, the midsize vendors, um, stock is not particularly deep. So you only need a few hundred more players to decide they want to play as foretold decks or throw it into a cube or whatever, um, or their EDH deck where it already represents almost 5,000 EDH rec reports, which is kind of our tipping, tipping point signal number that we use a lot. Um, so between casual and modern EDH demand, Me I feel too. very confident in this pick. Um, okay. So my second card for the week is, Kaya Ghost Assassin, the other Kaya, the old one from Conspiracy 2, the old one. Uh, I'm going to go wild here and pick a non-foil card. Um, the non-foils are about $14 right now. Uh, you are, I'm looking at these to go to maybe like 30-ish or so, $25, $30. She's not in a million decks. She's in about 3,000, roughly the same as like Garrick is. But the worldwide supply of conspiracy two is is rather low right like there wasn't a ton of that opened it's kind of in that battle bond space where there just isn't a lot of it on the market so it's not like there's a deep well to draw from if the card gets popular um there's an okay supply right now available like you can go buy some copies but it's not like we're talking about thousands it's you're looking at maybe i don't know 80 copies overall um you all this is also the card with 350 dollars foils so there, you know, those are the alternate art foils. So there's clearly going to be a bit of a disconnect there uh, in the way we see with some of the other cards of that nature. But there's obviously a ton of demand if people are paying anywhere near three, even if they're paying half of that. Like, why is the cards foil worth 150 and the non foils worth 14? Um, the foils weren't any more rare, and there are no non art 
alt art foils, all foils were the alternate version. So people are definitely interested in it uh, and interested in the card. They like it a lot more attention. Again, Planeswalkers, blah, blah, blah. 14 to 30, cool Planeswalker. Not a lot of them out there in the world. I think uh, I think you're going to see this trend up over the next couple months as well. Yeah, she's not really on my radar as something that gets a major uh, like boying effect from War of the Spark just because she doesn't. she's not the kind of Planeswalker I've ever considered to run in Atraxa. Um, she doesn't have a big ultimate that takes me closer to winning the game. She's more of a grind fest. So from that angle, I'm not sure how much support she gets, but there's no denying that, as you said, Conspiracy 2 is probably less open than Battle Bond by a significant margin. And the supply on this card is real low and the foils are real expensive. So all of that adds up to, you know, what did you put here? 14 to 30? Yeah, I can see if you can get in 14, 15, 16, I think getting out at 30 within the year is probably very fair. Yeah. Uh, to give you an update real quick, by the way, while you were chatting here, uh, I sold, I have sold two deep glow skates in the last day and I just jumped the price by two bucks and they're now selling at like $18. So that's not, I don't think that's popped up on our list in the last week or so, but you know, from when I talked about that, like a month ago, that has definitely moved a good chunk. Oh, deep glow skates been a huge winner. Uh, for the pro traders, the uh, hundreds of copies got imported from Europe over the last few weeks and were buy listed and made people a ton of money. Um, and they've been selling briskly on TCG and eBay as well. Yeah. Um, I should also point out, it's not a, a, a pick per se, but Walmart has the Japanese Commander 2016 decks for sale. And there is enough value in two or three of them that it, even though you can't easily buy list Japanese cards, you can probably like snap off the Atraxa deck breed lethality for say i think it's 37 shipped to your local walmart if they have it in stock because it's based on whether there is inventory in the regional distribution centers to you um uh there was in ohio where i was checking today i don't know if there is any in but in available in buffalo but breed lethality you basically just have to sell the foil tracks and you'd make your money back plus and then you'd, you would also get colonian hydra hardened scales soul ring um deep glow skate and a few other like $5 cards. Um, so not to move. And a couple of the other decks don't have a card as expensive as Atraxa, but they have multiple $20 cards um, because a bunch of the partners are in Commander 2016. Uh, and those are getting up there. Okay, that's good to know. Definitely worth checking out. Um, so my final pick of the week is Contagion Engine. Um, if you go looking for it in Near Mint, you're going to have trouble because it was targeted heavily in the last 48 hours and there are very few left. Um, I've got some foils sitting on my desk from when you were up at GP Toronto in February that we picked up when we uh, figured out that War of the Spark was Planeswalker based and foils I'm going to be posting in the like $45 to $50 range tonight. I'm willing to bet they sell out. Um, the non-foils I've been picking up in the $10 to $13 range, and that's mostly sold out in North America. But on TCG Player, as is oh, is frequently the case, when people tar- often forget to buy the uh, lightly played copies, there are still lightly played copies in the $12 to $15 range. And whether you are checking your local LGS looking for stock that hasn't been repriced yet, or um, going to one of the major sellers and tracking down the LPs, I think this could be a $25 to $30 card in a hurry. Because Double Proliferate uh, is going to interact well with a lot of stuff out of the War of the Spark, not just the Planeswalkers, but other things that care about counters. And giving all of your uh, one opponent's creatures minus one uh, counters is not a bad thing either. 
Yeah, it's pretty nuts how this card used to be garbage back in Scars of Mirrodin. This was like absolute bulk. Uh, and now it's certainly not. And I agree that, you know, as a speculator, I almost exclusively go for near mint cards, never LP options. But uh, I mean, they do sell. In fact, most of the time, if I list a card for near mint, and LP, the LP copies sell first, especially non-foils, because a lot of people are willing to just like, okay, LPs are usually totally fine. And if especially if I'm just jamming them in at EDH deck, you know, they're not meant to be pristine. And if it saves me a couple bucks, that's great. So I understand why people would go for these. Uh, and as wild as it used to be in, that this was bulk, they are not now. So I, I think, you know, 25, 30 bucks is probably pretty reasonable. Yeah, going back to when this was, th- this was as recently as 2012, a 80- So if it posts up to 25 or 30, anybody sitting on a stack of them is going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah, I'd say so. All right, so we got Grand Prix Calgary in segment three this weekend. This is the other magic event uh, whose results may matter somewhat to someone, uh, unlike the, uh, whatchamacallit, Mythic Invitational. Um, taken down by Valakit. Oh, now I remember. My friend did tell me that this won because it was listed as Jund Breach someplace, cause it's, but it's not. It's, um, it's a Valakit deck that uses Through the Breach to shove primeval titans into its opponent's faces um uh, a nifty deck a nifty use of uh, a nifty combination of through the breach and valakat makes you wonder how far before how long before they just put gristlebrand in here too or some something wild like that um other than that relatively you don't don't see you don't you you don't see main deck woodfall primus all that often in modern oh no no but i guess if you've already committed to both playing a deck that ramps lands and playing through the breach, but isn't in the market to play something like Gristlebrand. It's actually not terrible because it is pretty obnoxious and very good at dealing with like Lantern List because it hits their ensnaring bridge or uh, any of these other decks that are kind of relying on, you know, a permanent to keep you at bay. Yeah, I mean, getting to destroy two non-creature permanents has a wide range of applications in modern. Yeah, that's a big one. Um you know, other than that, you got the Shadow Humans. Is it Phoenix is snuck in here? Uh, Blue Moon in like fifth place is probably the most unique thing, um, but not a huge build here. Uh, Ral is a Viceroy uh, in the main deck. One copy. That's unique. I haven't seen that before, I don't think. Um, Pe- other people than that, were, people were talking on Twitter that the newly revealed Ral uh, for War of the Spark might slot in to Is it Phoenix instead of Crackling Drake? Um, and instead I saw some graphic, yeah. And I saw some graphics going around in our Discord and on Facebook groups that were explaining really weird things you can do with the new Rel, who basically copies, does damage when you um, on spell casts, and has abilities that copy spells. All right, and a so bunch of me... like weird things you can do in standard with that with expansion explosion, I believe. Let me read this really quick. Whenever you cast. Uh, so it's four mana whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery he deals one damage to an opponent or planeswalker his plus two is scry one and his minus two is when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn copy it and you can choose new targets so basically every time you cast a spell every time you put a spell onto the stack he deals one damage to somebody 
So it was something about like in that. standard, you 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 activate his ability and then like cast shock or something, and then copy it a bunch of times in response to the triggers hitting the stack, and then re- resolve backwards and end up doing some massive amount of damage. Hmm. With expansion explosions. I would have to go back. Um, I didn't. Yeah. You didn't what? I'm gonna have to do a little bit of research to get fully up to speed on that, but it sounded nasty. Copy target instant or sorcery spell. Uh, I mean, I don't see. I mean, you could. I don't understand why this is so. I guess you can like cast a shock targeting. You can cast. Um, hmm. Okay, I don't need to figure this out on air. But I guess you probably copy the expansion, which then copies other things. So then you expansion twice, which then means you're getting multiple copies of like your your shock which are all dealing damage and all getting copied and all triggering and so forth okay okay i've got i've got the link for you here <laughs> it is a so there's an infinite combo in war standard apparently you have ral and play you cast any cheap spell holding priority so say opt or shock cast expansion targeting your cheap spell keep holding priority cast expansion number two targeting the first mm. expansion and then step five, let expansion two resolve, targeting the original expansion with the copy you create. Route pings for one. Keep copying expansion until your opponent is dead. I see. And apparently that's infinite damage. So you have to cast expansion. Tw- you have to have two separate expansions in your hand with a Ral Zarek in play. And like an opt or a shock. Okay. I'm less interested. <laughs> Just by virtue of how many you have to have going for you here. Yeah, it's it's. It's a stretch anytime you got that many cards and steps involved. But if if that deck is good anyway, like has can play a counter control or counter aggro style game or some kind of mid range controly thing, and that comes together. And keep in mind that this could be a Grixis build that maybe has the new Nickel Bolas at the top end, who's pretty nasty. Um, that certainly likes uh, to uh, borrow abilities and and double them up. Um, and could be running, say, something like Jace Cunning Castaway, which is a whole other combo. Because we'll get we'll get into this in a second. But <laughs> there's there's a bunch of <laughs> maybes and what ifs um, forthcoming in the testing regimen, as is typical for standard. Oh boy, I love me some maybes and what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else jumped out at you here. Anything? Uh, I mean, I thought I thought the winning deck had the the greatest number of innovations. There was a lot of concession in that deck to the need to interact. Uh, Main deck Assassin's Trophy, two main deck Fatal Push, um, Vosives in the main, and also, you know, trying to build resiliency um, to disruption by having multiple angles of attack, right? Um, So it's it's, it's interesting. We've seen uh, at least five or six different ways of building Valakut decks over the years. Um, and they always seem to be uh, ad- adapting anew to the meta. The rest of this was, you know, pretty standard stuff. Death Shadow is good. Humans is good. Is it Phoenix is probably too good. Might get hit by Phoenix, uh, Faithless Looting and then set up Humans and Death Shadow to be in a real good position. But then again, Modern Horizons might blow the whole thing up. So who knows how relevant these results are three months out. Right, which is really the the underlying story here is just doesn't really mean all that much because the format just feels like it could change so much so yeah. quickly. All right. So moving right along, um, two big topics for us to tackle this week. Uh, the first of which is the uh, card reveals for War of the Spark. 
Um, the spoilers kicked off, the official spoilers kicked off on Sunday. Um, and a couple of other leaks have leaked out around them. And we are now staring at a few dozen cards from the set, uh, including the majority of the Planeswalkers now having been spoiled. Um, proud to say that uh, totally nailed what was going to happen with Uncommon Planeswalkers. And that was without actually having ever seen them. So I did not have any foreknowledge of what Uncommon Planeswalkers were going to be like. Um, or even that they were going to exist, but we correctly theorized that there would be uncommon, rare, and mythic planeswalkers, and indeed there are. We also uh, correctly surmised that the lower the rarity of the planeswalker, the less the lower the number of abilities they would receive, and correctly identified that there would probably be a static ability plus maybe only minus abilities. Um, the only thing that we seem to have gotten wrong was my uh, theory that we would get flip walkers where the walkers, once they ran out of loyalty would get demoted back to creatures as they lost their spark, which seemed bang on from a thematic perspective, but they did not go that route, which would have been cool. I'll give you that. Uh, however, plenty of cool cards to talk about. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, um, I don't know, man, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I'm sure people knew, um, there was a, there was a leak which we we mentioned earlier, so a lot showed up there. Um, so we have pre, we don't have all the planeswalkers, but we have all the rare ones, I think. Right, that's what we got. Uh, I think the fact that they're doing static abilities on every single one is very cool. That to me is like the best part of this because there's some cool, some very interesting stuff that could be floating around in there, and it's floating around in there on those static abilities, and it's probably design space that. I understand why they didn't start with that, but I hope that it becomes more permanent so, because I think that's a good use of walkers. So let's do this given time constraints and a little bit of a nod to our fellow creator content creators. Let's talk about the cards. We can easily focus on choose to focus on the cards that have been officially spoiled today uh, without sacrificing too much ground and double back on some of the stuff that I already knew about that's now been confirmed that still isn't official and we can tackle that in a week or two. Yeah, okay. Right. That's fair. So, no blurry pictures. One of the cards, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stick to the non blurry pictures. Uh, so, one of the cards that I think might be being underestimated is, uh, or could be a trap, is Teferi Time Raveler. Um, one white blue, four loyalty coming in. Uh, each opponent can cast spells only any time they could cast a sorcery. So, basically, City of Solitude. Uh, plus one, until your next turn, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash. And minus three, return up to one target artifact, creature, or enchantment to its owner's hand and draw a card. Thoughts on mm-hmm. this? I actually think this is pretty legit. I don't know what the magic community's take on it is. Uh, there's not a lot of people in my Twitter feed that discuss this type of stuff very often. Um, I do think that card is very powerful um, because coming down at first and then immediately stopping instants from getting played has a lot of utility. Um, I guess it's, you know, like if you you put him on the stack on turn three, your opponent has a chance to cast any instance. He resolves, you pass, they untap. They now can play everything at sorcery speed. So that's fine. But if you get the, but if he comes down and then immediately goes to five, if you have anything in play, it's going to make killing him tough. And then after that, it's going to be miserable. And I don't know for your opponent, I don't know if you've ever played against, the uh, the original Teferi, like the one that locks out your opponent's spells and, and makes them all cast as sorceries. That is surprisingly frustrating. Um, 
very difficult to deal with if you're on the other end of that, especially when your opponent is just still has all their instants because you can never do anything about well, I mean, it. This... And him. Hmm? Go ahead. I would say, and then, you know, this isn't quite the same because it doesn't give all of your spells flash, but being able to give your spells flash once is pretty legitimate. I mean, you don't need to be able to do that too many times. You only need to, once per turn is still going to be pretty good because your counter spells are all valid, but now you're just plus wanting him every turn so that you have the option available. And then that gives you like the option to wrath on their turn or cast like powerful sorcery speed removal at instant speed that they wouldn't normally have to deal with. So for instance, uh, along those lines, I went ahead and made a loose spec pick this afternoon that didn't make my list because it's definitely loose, um, but uh, had some qualities that I liked in particular uh, its relationship with Teferi Time Reveler. Days Undoing for Magic Origins. It's a mythic, relatively (laughs) low inventory. And it's basically a time twister. The downside that people were having trouble breaking was that if it's your turn, you end the turn. So you're both uh, both players shuffle their hand and graveyard into their library, then draw seven cards, but then your turn ends. And so you're passing the turn to your opponent with a full grip, which is not ideal. So people have been looking at, in the past, we're trying to <clears throat> either counter the trigger uh, with stuff like, uh, I think stifle or trick bind, right? Could be used to deal with the trigger. Or you can uh, find some other way to try to work around it. But with Teferi, um, the clause in this that says, if it's your turn and the turn is irrelevant because you can cast this as an instant. So you wait till the end, you cast Teferi um, plus one at the end of their turn. Once they've passed out of their uh, last opportunity to cast any kind of sorcery speed stuff, you cast Days Undoing. Everybody gets a new hand. It comes to your turn and they can't do anything because they can only cast things during their main phase. So you're sitting right. there with a full grip and you just time twisted, which, you know, a lot of players these days have never cast that effect in magic because they haven't had the opportunity. But anybody that plays vintage will, or or powered cube will tell you that there are many busted things that one might end up doing on their turn if they were full grip unopposed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you just get to run, run hog wild and your opponent has been sculpting their gameplay around the cards that are in their hand. And like trying to pick lines based on what they have available to them. And then you just flip all that out the window. Um, so he, he's, I think standard might actually be the least relevant format for him. He seems, uh, but- he seems good there because you get to wrath on their turn, which is a huge deal in standard. But in like modern, you can get some really bonkers stuff going in EDH, turning off everyone's instance and being able to cast your own ludicrous sorceries in the middle of your opponent's turns is going to be even better. I think he's going to see standard play. Here's why. Um, there's already a strong Esper control contingent that heavily relies on counter spells um, in standard right now. We just saw it like in the best of one matches this weekend. And you also, and Esper also represents in the best of three standard environment right now. And keep in mind that when they can only cast spells, when they can cast sorceries, it turns off all the opposing counter spells. So in the control mirrors, especially, can you believe they printed this when you already have Teferi Hero of Dominaria still in the format for six months? Yeah. So you can build decks that have Teferi Time Raveler, Teferi Hero of Dominaria, and Wilderness Reclamation together. So now you get to cast anything you want at instant speed and you get your mana back at the end of the turn? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nasty. This does seem nuts to have this in with, with uh, what's his name? With the other Teferi. And I suppose their consideration to this is, well, your opponent might do the same thing to you. 
Um, yeah. You know, and like it's gonna be, it's gonna be resolving to Fairy that's the hard part. Well, he, well, that's the thing. Compared to Tefir, Teferi, uh, Mage of Zelfir, the one that is a five casting cost, he had Flash. So the tension there was you would wait till they give you a wind of opportunity, then flash him in and then shut off all their future counter spells. With this guy, you got to get him down early enough before they have their setup with free mana to counter him. But he's three casting cost, so he has a shot at coming down early enough. And then once he's down, they've got to deal mm-hmm. with him. And and he wh- one of the things I think is interesting is he can't he can only tuck artifact creatures and enchantments, not planeswalkers. But his big brother version can tuck opposing Teferis. So if you get this guy down and then they Teferi, then you Teferi, you can tuck their Teferi and then you're having these like ridiculous Teferi wars. I can guarantee you this much. I think control players in standard are going to be so sick of Teferis by the end of this season. It's going to be obscene. Yeah, if Wizard's goal was to say, you know what? You guys wouldn't shut the hell up about asking for Teferi back for the last decade. Well, guess what? You are going to get what you asked for, you assholes. And they're just shoving him into your face so hard. I see this as a multi-format staple. Uh, in EDH, turning off all your opponent's abilities to cast spells on, on uh, only their own turn means on any given person opponent's turn, you're only worrying about them and you. And on your turn, you're not worrying about any of them. Yes. That's that's pretty yep. good. And then, and then being able to cast your sorceries on their turn opens up a wide range of nasty possibilities. And returning uh, an artifact creature or enchantment to its own hand and drawing a card as your like backup plan if you know it's probably not going to survive means that you're never down a card for playing it so i, I think he makes attracts of super friends um under a doubling season he comes in with eight loyalty and is pretty tough to deal with and that's actually a theme you see repeated through a lot of the planeswalkers one of the ways that they attempted to balance the planeswalkers that have very limited ability sets is they gave them much higher than usual loyalty for their casting cost and that means that under doubling season effects and proliferation effects, they are actually very difficult to clear off the board. Um, it's t- it, it, Outside of like overwhelming aggro armies in EDH, you're, a small smattering of regular creatures are not going to be able to push through on a track of Super Friends board once you get like three, four, five of these uh, five, six, seven, eight loyalty planeswalkers on the battlefield. One of the good examples is Kiora, Behemoth Beckoner. Huh. That was the other one I was looking at. <laughs> that is a nice card. Certainly a staple in EDH. It's two green-blue. Um, seven loyalty coming into play. Under a doubling season, it comes in with 14 loyalty. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Now, she's fairly narrow in scope. As a result, whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. If you're playing the creature versions of Atraxa, this is certainly in there. Um, And the minus one untapped target permanent is much better than it seems in EDH because you're untapping at minimum your soul rings, your mana crypts, your mana vaults, and any number of other things you might want to do. Your guy's cradles. Yeah, it makes the deck in Vanifar, obviously, because untapping Vanifar for minus one and being able to do that every turn until they put pressure on Kiora is definitely worthwhile. And that's an uncommon. So these foils are going to be dirt cheap at some point, and there'll be an easy scoop at like one, two, three dollars, whatever, to be future four, five, six, seven, eight dollar foils. 
Yeah, I am right on board with you. Uh, when you were still chatting about the fairy and I was looking over to see what else I wanted to talk about, I was like, oh, yeah, Kiora. Kiora is nice because you get to untap cradles. You're going to it's going to draw you a bunch of cards. Uh, and the like you said, the foils are going to be dirt cheap at some point. I'm pretty impressed with the designs, to be honest. It's tough to, to pull off 36 planeswalkers in a set. And I think they nailed it. Um, another example of Raska Swarm's Eminence, two green, black, green, black hybrid. Um, uh, we've got a bunch of hybrid uh, mana cost planeswalkers in this set. Whenever a creature you control with Death Touch deals damage to a player or a planeswalker, put a plus one, plus one counter on that creature. She comes in with five ability. That ability alone, plus Basilisk Caller, plus Walking Ballista is game. <laughs> That's... That's true, I suppose. Take a counter off Walking Ballista, deal the damage to a player. It gets a plus one, plus one counter, rinse and repeat. Hmm. That is kind of funny. I don't know how relevant that is, but it's funny. Um, and then the minus two, create a one, one black assassin creature token with death touch. And whenever this creature deals damage to a planeswalker, destroy that planeswalker. That's probably more relevant uh, in limited and standard. Um, this is going to be a very strange limited environment, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, what else jumped out at you? Uh, well, um, I, along with everyone else, was pretty taken with Bolas' Citadel. This is the uh, six-mile legendary artifact. You can always look at the top card of your library. Uh, you can cast the top card of your library at any time. And uh, here's the fun part. You pay life instead of paying the mana cost. It gives, turns all of your spells into Phyrexian spells, except they're half the cost as Phyrexian mana. Never so dangerous. You'll, you'll remember Phyrexian mana that... Mechanic. They <laughs> got like forty percent of. They got like forty percent of its cards banned in multiple formats. Well, <laughs> this does that. Um, the only reason this isn't game over as soon as it resolves is because you have to get past the lands in your deck. Every you know, the first land you can put in the play off the top, um, but you can't play the second land off. I'm sure a deck playing spells, playing a card like this, is going to have plans for that. So you're not really planning on hard casting balls to sit at all. At least not hardcasting it fairly um but this is the type of thing for instance that i was thinking you could put into some future version of uh lanternless control where you have a bunch of our cheap artifacts they all let you look at the top the, let you manipulate the top card of your library and they let you cast word invention easily so now you play like stuff like lantern and all those types of stuff that you you um you were balls of Citadel in the play, and you just keep casting spells, and then every time you get a land on, on top, you bin it with your lantern. And remember, if you're playing, if you're, as you're casting the spells, you're putting more lanterns in the play, and then when you hit extra lands, you pitch those to the bottom, so like it kind of keeps going. And then you could put like Aetherflux Reservoir in there, or um, a Grape Shot, or whatever, to kind of finish it off. It's also the type of deck that probably doesn't mind sacrificing 10 permanents to gain a bunch of life back um, or, or to do 10 to the opponent type of thing. So there's just like, that's just right off the top of my head, what I came up with. Uh, and I think people were kind of drawn a comparison to Yawgmoth's bargain, which, uh, which is a better card. So Yawgmoth's bargain is the one where you just pay a life and draw a card. Uh, not a fair magic card. This is not that good. Mostly uh, because just drawing the cards is better but this does make you an obscene amount of mana very easily. And like, this is a card that can draw you five or six cards a turn and also save you like 
between four and 10, 15 mana a turn. That is a really big deal. So you can't spec on Bolas' Citadel, but you gotta, you gotta find the shell that people are gonna fit this in and then look at that. So do not buy Bolas' Citadels. Buy the cards in the deck that Bolas' Citadel works in. It's a rare, not a mythic. Yeah. Um, and you the- probably would only play one because I'm assuming you're tutoring it. The thing is, people are going to fool around with this in EDH, Modern, and Legacy. Maybe in Vintage. Oh, Um, definitely in Vintage, right? Because one of the things I didn't realize off the top was I thought this was an enchantment, but it's an artifact. Yeah. There's a lot more ways to get artifacts, say, into and out of your graveyard. (laughs) So, like, for instance, you can do um, something as simple as Goblin Welder. Yep. Right? And then you discard this into the graveyard, Goblin Welder it back into play, and off you go. (laughs) And so it's a long-term foil spec for EDH for sure. Um, I don't know whether Sam Black and company, uh, you know, your Conley Woods of the world and and, uh, the rest of the brew crew are going to be able to put this to task in modern in an effective way. But you sure as hell know Saffron's going to run it and sell some copies. Um, we also didn't even touch on the final ability on the card, which is kind of like tacked on there for thematic reasons. Tap, sack, 10 non-land permanents, and each opponent loses 10 life. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you were playing some kind of like Revel in Riches, Smothering Tithe type deck, like the, all of those cards were slotting into your Brea build, for instance. Um, and you're playing a bunch of cheap artifacts and skull clamps and all sorts of like weird small artifact combos. Um, you know, the... This is going to be a staple for a long you time. Aren't, you weren't listening to me because I did mention this because I said you play it in the lantern list deck and then you sack like a bunch of your spare lanterns or your, uh, oh, what the heck is that one? The bobble type cards from Scars of Mirrodin that like draw you a card on the way in and way out that are two mana, those types of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bo- yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating card. It does some really cool stuff. Um, and can you imagine this like vintage in one of the uh, the land grant decks? Right. Where you just like you only have like two lands, three lands in your deck and you just but like you have land grant and serum powder and the London Mulligan rule. (laughs) You're just like, uh, yeah, sure. No problem. (laughs) Like you're just going to have this like turn one every time. Okay, with Mishra's Workshop and a Lotus. Sure. There might be a standard deck for this. But again, in most of the formats where you're playing it, probably not the full complement. So as you said, you want to know what the four ofs in the deck are alongside it um, and then wait for your opportunity to move in on foils for EDH as a longer term thing. Yeah, and this this is the type of card that really tickles me. And if there was going to be something that dragged me back to playing competitive magic, it would probably be trying to do something stupid with this. Um, so I'm very curious to see where this goes. I don't I can't tell you what to buy yet, but I definitely think there's going to be something. Start reading the everybody's going to start posting lists for this thing. So just pay attention. Um, yeah, so definitely- Ari Lax, by the way, will be a good one to listen to because he's usually on the ball of this stuff. Sure. He also was talking up a Restore Balance deck like yesterday or the day before. Mm. So you should really listen <laughs> to him. <laughs> all right. So we should definitely touch on all the cool lands they revealed. Um, Emergence Zone, uh, Taps for Colorless, pay one, sack it, and you can cast spells as though they had Flash this turn. Um, that's likely to make its way into decks in EDH where you can both make use of the effect um frequently and have a way to recycle lands so if you're running things like crucible of worlds this gets a lot better because the fact that you have to sack it to use it doesn't matter as much um but i'm more excited for the other two interplanar beacon whenever you cast a planeswalker spell you gain a life tap it to make colorless 
and then one in a tap, add two mana, two mana of different colors, spend this mana only to cast Planeswalker spells. Bingo, bango, bongo. That's an automatic include in every attractive Super Friends deck from here to eternity. Sure. I don't doubt that whatsoever. Now, it's an uncommon, so you don't need to jump in on the foils too quickly. But at some point, you're going to catch cheap foils of this, probably in Europe, where it won't probably be all that useful in standard unless somebody tries to figure out five-color planeswalkers for standard using this. Um, but I suspect you're going to get cheap foils of this in Europe in the next couple months. Um, and then finally, probably, I think we can both agree, the biggest uh, staple for EDH in the land set we've seen so far, Karn's Bastion. This is like a fortress that Karn builds in response to the invasion of Ravnica by Bolas. Um, tap for a colorless, and then four tap proliferate. So again, auto-include in Atraxa. Um, because every time you activate it, you get to bump up all your Planeswalkers. And if you're in a counters build, you're getting all the counters sweeping across the board. And there's usually room for, a f- even though the color requirements are fairly tight in most Atraxa builds, there are there's usually room for a few colorless utility lands like this. And this one definitely makes the cut. I will tell you, I'm a little more, I'm a little medium on this on this card particularly. Don't get me wrong. If you're playing an Atraxa Super Friends build, this land is nutty, right? It's got to be the first colorless land you slot into the deck. If you're playing anything else, it's probably not worth it. Um, just the colorless land penalties are high. That That is a not negligible tax to playing cards that don't make colorless mana. And the thing is, is most decks don't care about proliferate. Tracks of walkers, no question. Other decks, nah. I actually, out of like the eight EDH decks I have, I don't think a single one of them wants this card. Now, I don't have any decks built around Planeswalkers, nor do I have any decks built around putting counters on creatures. Um, And in those strategies, this card will certainly be important. But it's not the sort of universal card that people might think it is off of the bat. Because you'd be surprised how few commanders and strategies actually really want Proliferate like that badly. It's a subset of them, for sure. But there's actually like in the... If you go past the top... In the top 10 commanders, there are at least half of them care about counters one way or the other. Um, uh, a lot of the ones that recycle creatures from the graveyard or deal with plus one plus one counter themes or even like uh, decks that are dealing with infect, um, you know, all are interested in putting more counters on players and or permanents. Um, so, we, so don't, I don't, we don't count infected EDH because those people <laughs> are not. Well, the command zone keeps featuring people. it. So people keep buying the cards. The, um, oh, Really? Now, from a financial perspective, Karn's Bastion is held back because it's going to be a promo. Um, and the promo has the better art. So I suspect that's the one you're going to want because um, it's like the fortress is it's a better art period, but it's also more dynamic. Like the fortress is exploding out of the ground um, and it's got the War of the Spark logo in the background. Um, it's from Pla- it's from Planeswalker Weekend, which is probably like the week after release or something. Um, anyway. Uh, that's going to probably... You mean you don't have Planeswalker Weekend on your calendar? <laughs> it's probably going to lengthen uh, the whole time and lessen the rush to get in. Uh, anything else jump out at you? Um, I mean, those are the ones that I thought of. It was Teferi, Kiora, and the Bolsa's Fortress oh. there. Um, I, I know what I wanted I to mean, flag. Dreadhorde Arcanist. Um, has already oh, has already more than doubled and doubled in price this morning. I almost pulled the trigger on these at three when they appeared on Star City Games, uh, and then it sold out. I saw them at four, and I was like, ah. Eh. And then by the time I got back, they were eight. Um, so this is the the latest in the many 
attempts Wizards has made to create a Snapcaster Mage for red. And I think this is actually pretty interesting because this could easily be a trap or could get there. It has a couple of different angles. It's a one red creature for a one three trample zombie wizard. So those are two pretty relevant creature types. And then whenever it attacks, you may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost less than or equal to Dreadhorde Arcanist power from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If the card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. So at bare minimum, it casts free spells. So it can cast Living End, Restore Balance, uh, Wheel of Fate, and uh, Ancestral Vision. Um, that in and of itself is worth testing. But then you start asking the question, like, would it even slot into existing Living End lists? You know, how does a 1-3 that has to attack to trigger your combo work in the grand scheme of things? You, you can look at it from some other angles, from just an aggro perspective, potentially for standard um, or maybe in modern, as something that's like a Kiln Fiend kind of effect, where Kiln Fiend, you got plus three, plus zero, plus whatever the bonus was you were getting off the spell. So if you giant growth a Kiln Fiend, it's attacking for seven. This has similar properties, because if you giant growth this and then attack, you get for another green, you can cast the giant growth again. So then it's a seven, three. Um, so I'm curious, and I think lots of people are as to whether enough of the other pieces arrange themselves around it in such a way that makes it good enough. It's definitely a fascinating uh, tool here. Um, I'm, I, I don't, this is, this to me has the same problem as a nickel bull. It's not, let me rephrase that. This has a similar problem to nickel bulls pillow fort in that I'm more interested in what you're running with it than I am in the card. But I do think the card is better positioned than the, the, the fort is because you're going to need a play set of these if you're playing this deck. And, you know, I'm sure that like Japanese or Russian foils will be dumb if somebody figures this out. So it's better than nickel bolus, but it's still the fort, but it's still a standard rare. That's a weird combo piece. So I'm more curious to see what people pair it with, but I agree the the possibilities are there. Obviously you've got the, you, you talk through it all, but the free spells right off the bat. And then on top of that, if you pump this thing up, you can cast, I'm sure, some really silly, you know, turn one faithless looting, dumping um, the spell you want to cast and a couple other cards. And, and then this guy in turn two and turn three, you maybe you mill a, more, a few more cards and then you delve some pump spell and then you cast enter the infinite or whatever the useful sorcery would be. So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of possibility here. I find the card very curious, very, very fun. Um, this is another one what I would like to see people take a shot at in modern and they're really curious to see what modern horizons brings to see if, you know, there's a, what is that green spell? Um, shoot. It's the one they use in legacy. In fact, that you can, Mutagenic uh, growth. Mut- no, 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 no. The one where you, your opponent gains for life. Invigorate. You can have your opponent invigorate. Yeah. You can have your opponent gain for life and the creature gets plus four, plus four. So like the creature's power and their life are an even trade. In fact, loves it because they don't care about their imposed life total. They're, they're poisoning them here. You don't care that your opponent's gaining four life. If you're making this guy into five power and casting some sorcery, that's going to end the game. Uh, so, so, so be curious to see what tools kind of float around, uh, what people do with this. So there's another card that caught my eye. Fibble Fip the lost. No idea if that's how mm. you pronounce his name, but I think it's as good as anybody's going to get today. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. One in a blue for a 1-1. Homunculus. When he enters the battlefield, draw a card. If it entered from your library or was cast from your library, draw two cards instead. So if you court of calling this guy, you get two cards. If you... um, uh, What's the three green instant spell that 
search is the top Revolution? six. No, the search oh. is the top six. Collected company. If you collect a company and oh. you into play, you get two cards. If you uh, <laughs> what's the three three for one and a green that if you pay two, you get to flip look at the top three and put one into your hand or into play or something. It's a uh, Duskwatch recruiter, but it's into right. your hand. It's in your hand, right? Okay. So anyway, there's a bunch of green effects that would just put him into play and draw cards. And then if he becomes the target of a spell, you put him back into your library. Um, probably more cute than good, right? That's my read on it for sure that, you know, you, you have to do a, fair bit of work and give up the slots for this just to potentially draw a couple cards because he's just a boring one one that does nothing else once he's in play um so i think he's just short of being good but i could be wrong on this um that's it's hard to say you know he's, he's pure value there's nothing else there I'll tell you, the, the dominant theme so far in this set is shoveling janky combos at us and testing us to see how good we are at evaluating the potential. <laughs> because we also have Jace Wielder of Mysteries, uh, potentially the final Jace. Maybe Jace dies. Who knows? One triple blue, four loyalty. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. Plus one target player puts the top two cards of their library into their graveyard. Draw a card. Minus eight, draw seven cards. Then if your library has no cards in it, you win the game. Mm-hmm. Another laboratory maniac. Yeah. So people are fooling around, specking on leveler. People are specking on uh, laboratory maniac foils. I saw. Those are already no really I- expensive. Yeah, I-, I have no idea. Like, obviously, a fringe deck will come of this. Um, whether it's anything more than that, I have no clue. Somebody in our Discord pointed out, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to tread on somebody's toes here, but the Nicol Bolas that was in the spoilers, like the actual leak spoilers. Yep. Um, the card I knew. Yeah. He, his ultimate, or Jace, Jace's ultimate, Jace. Oh, that was me. So Jace, Jace but I got it from somewhere else. Jace Cunning oh, that Castaway. Was you that said that. Yeah, Jace kind of, well, it wasn't my original idea. Well, yeah. Um, I just was the one who mentioned it in the Discord. Jace Cunning Castaway um, makes two copies of himself, but you got to get him uh, up to, I think, six loyalty to do it. Um, and Bolas comes into play with five loyalty, and then you plus one him. And then the following turn, if you had him and Jace in play, Bolas can make two copies of himself. Yeah. Which then, that's, na- that's super nasty. Which you can Good just keep doing, right? That. Like yeah, <laughs> like doesn't that just give you an infinite number? No, they, then then the new no 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 it's not infinite immediately because the new ones come in with five loyalty. Then they have to plus one and survive a turn. But odds are, it's going to keep happening because you have to deal with fifteen, uh, sixteen loyalty. The turn after that goes off. But what if you have doubling season, James? Then you can't have infinite nickel ball says in in your Grixis deck. Yes, that's true. It's an Atraxa. Uh, you can't play Bullis in a Jackson, <laughs> but okay. So I'm anyway, b- bottom line is I don't I don't know if that jank is good either. But between you know, there's a lot of Grixis control cards. You got Negate, you got the Devil, you got a bunch of different Planeswalker options now, and Bolas plus other things at the top end. Um, I could see Grixis control in Standard for sure, and I'm curious. I, I think that uh, Bolasy goodness is probably likely to pop up in EDH. Um, and when he's officially revealed, maybe we'll talk about him more. Um, one final card I want to flag before we call the night, and we'll dip into this again next week. 
uh, at which point we'll have all sorts of new goodies to look at. Vivian's Arcbow, one in a green legendary artifact. X tap, discard a card. Look at the top X cards of your library. You may put creature card with converted mana cost X or less from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Uh, green staple for EDH. Yeah, right? it's, it's fascinating. Green has so many tools to flip creatures into play that it's it's hard to say, but that is definitely a potent ability. Um, I guess the concern is you spend like seven on this and then you hit like a four mana creature and it just feels like there's always more you can be doing with the cards in your hand instead. It's the more creature centric your commander deck is, the better this gets. Um, but X, X abilities are much better, I would argue, in commander than they are anywhere else because of the big mana rocks. Um, you know, what would seem like it's going to take you a long time to like make X equal five isn't really that long. You can get modestly lucky in your first five turns of the game and have 10 mana available to you in green plus mana rocks. So, um, and then you're just flipping silliness into play. And presumably you're building a deck that you, the cards that you're discarding are of use to you in the graveyard. Like maybe you're bringing them back. Like Muldratha definitely runs this card because it's putting permanence I can cast for free into the graveyard while I'm getting fresh stuff. Well, that's certainly yeah. useful. No question there. And depending on... And, and the thing is, it's not even a green-centric card. You don't need green to activate it, and it's not only looking for green creatures or anything. It's just open-ended creatures. So if your Maldratha deck is creatures with enters, uh, comes into playability heavy... Uh, or sack abilities, then this slots right in. Yeah. I mean, it's a good card, it, for it's, sure. It's, I just it strikes me as probably see. a Whip of Erebos-type spec, where we get to wait a while, they'll get real low, they won't really do, be doing anything in standard, I hope, and then there'll be some kind of like 6, 12, 18-month horizon, depending on how itchy your trigger figure is. That sounds more likely. Yeah. yeah. Um... All right, I haven't eaten dinner yet. So, right, so we can, we can cap this for now. Oh, this one final topic <laughs> that we did say, we, it, oh just because it's timely. Oh I'll, I'll make it quick. There was a big hullabaloo about... Okay, the Mythic Invitation went down this weekend. Oh, this. Um, I thought you were talking about the dude's question. No, we're, we're not. Skipping we're that skipping that completely and bumping it to next week. Ditto the foils versus non-foils uh, debate. We'll get into that next week. Um, we're running out of time, but I do want to touch on the Mythic Invitational and the marketing campaign that sprung up that was going on around it. Um, Mythic Invitational was, uh, I think we can both agree, a pretty cool event. Uh, production values were very impressive. Um, the uh, way that the tournament run, the team that was handling coverage did a very good job. Um, the, I think a lot of people questioned some of the specifics of the way the tournament was run in terms of uh, like life totals deciding things if the timers ran out and so forth. That was a little weird. But overall, um, I think everybody can agree a great event for Magic that um, helped to uh, take Magic steps towards being a significant esport that is recognized in the digital gaming space. Um, Even as someone as incredulous and pessimistic as I am, did find that the production value was noticeably better uh, compared to other Magic events and in general was quite solid. Yep. Uh, it, it was good. Yeah. So Mostly. Um, and some, you know, there was a bunch of like good things for the community that came out of the way the tournament unfolded. There were some really impressive matches. Matt Nass put up another great performance and had a really amazing 
uh, line of play at the end of one of his matches that people will be talking about for years. Um, there was several uh, women that were involved in the tournament that did very, very well um, and, put the, <laughs> and put the fires to the heels of the fools that, that speak otherwise. Um, there, there was, was uh, a lack of Owens, which was yeah. also a victory. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know the full details of that story. And most we, but we all kind of have a sense of what went on there. And it's unfortunate for the game for that to happen to a Hall of Famer, but it is what it is. If you do things that are not conducive to the health and safety of your fellow players and members of the Magic community, then I think it's great for everybody. Um, if we always put that ahead, that concern ahead of, um, you know, what, whatever is going on with the competitive side of the game. So, yeah. you know, the way that that was handled was, as 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 much as I can expect from any corporation faced with those choices at that time, the um, uh, there was a streamers versus pros thing going on, and a lot of the streamers who were not mainstream Magic pros did very well for themselves. There was a player from Italy whose name escapes me, who was very impressive. Uh, the guy Andrea that was Gucci. Uh, well, no, that's the guy who won. He's <laughs> certainly impressive, and congratulations to him for the biggest cash prize winning ever in the history of Magic the Gathering, $250,000. Um, but the second place uh, finisher was a prominent streamer from Europe. Um, and in fact, the top four were all, I think, from Europe. Um, and so it was interesting because I think people thought the pros were just going to put everybody away really quick. But the combination of... Um, most of the people they had selected actually being very strong magic players and um, the best of one format being pretty swingy um, led to a situation where we got a, a, a mixed bag result where the pros didn't have too much to be embarrassed about. And the streamers took a step forward in terms of estab establishing themselves on that kind of a stage for magic. Um, all of which is great. So one thing, however, irked me completely and I was talking about it uh, on Twitter because everyone else was talking about it from a completely wrong-headed angle, um, and I felt the need to pipe up. And that is... You? You? No. Surely. Surely no. <laughs> In this case, I don't think it's people being wig willfully ignorant so much as people just not really being connected to the advertising industry or understanding how much of this, how this, these kind of campaigns unfold. But the, yeah, nar the narrative that was being driven was that magic, the, the event was so spectacular that it was drawing people in from across the globe who were just flocking in on Twitch to watch the stream. And we were breaking all these records and we crested 100,000 viewers on like Sunday mid-afternoon. And I'm just here to tell you folks, that was complete and utter bullshit. What actually was happening was that Wizards was spending a shit ton of money pushing uh, Twitch... Uh, video embeds into third-party websites with the sound off so somebody could be out there browsing ign.com and there'd be the a video exile wikipedia page whatever whatever a world of warcraft fan account page or whatever and embedded in that would be the little twitch stream and here's the thing in the advertising industry doing that kind of thing is valuable if it's cheap enough because you can still get your brand potentially in front of people. For every 100 people that visit that page, maybe one of them actually turns the sound on, uh, takes the window full screen and actually starts paying attention and maybe they switch over to Twitch and they actually start watching. That's a good thing. You want to have funnels that cast a broad net and pull people in if they're cost effective. No issue with that. The issue I have is that 
you can't pay to have falsified viewers on on Twitch and then claim that it's some major organic viewing win where like people just like heard through the grapevine that this awesome thing was going on and then they just came over to Twitch and started watching. That's not what happened. There was a noticeable increase in total viewers this weekend because I think the production value and the star power and uh, the newness of the whole way the event was being run was boosting numbers. And by our, my best estimates, numbers say if you say that a great weekend on Twitch for Magic would be like twenty thousand viewers, then maybe they were pushing twenty five or thirty naturally, um, which is still a, like a good increase. But they were claiming like, oh, we topped a hundred thousand, and I saw multiple Wizard staff members like trumpeting this on on Twitter, and a lot of people that were involved with the event were echoing that, and major content creators from YouTube, like the prof and whoever were talking about, Oh, look at this like major win for magic. We've we're going mainstream and all this. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> They're spending money to try to go mainstream, Tr- spending money to try to attract viewers, but whether it's effective or not has yet to be seen because those numbers are inflated. And they did the same thing with the admittedly super excellent trailer we got. So they did a trailer for War mm-hmm. of the Spark that was fully digitally animated, the best trailer they've ever made. There's no debate that it was deserving of a significant amount of views on YouTube. But a good like set of views on YouTube for that trailer would have been something in the like 100,000, 200,000 range, something like that. Um, over some period of time. This thing rocketed to the top five on the YouTube trending list in like 48 hours. There is no way that happened naturally given the public awareness of this brand. This is not Avengers Endgame, right? Like this is not a global mainstream brand that everybody knows about. That kind of success is not possible. What actually happened was they did a similar campaign on YouTube. They paid to run the trailer in front of other people's videos. So it was an ad spend project. And those views counted towards the total number of times that the uh, the trailer was watched. And in both cases, the Twitch viewers and the YouTube thing, upwards of 50 to 75% of the total viewers or views were totally false. They, yeah. they were not active engagements by users that's the question i was going to ask you was what percentage of a hundred thousand viewers do you think were fake because i got into this discussion with my friends in real life on sunday afternoon at the tail end of it and they were talking about the viewer accounts and i said yeah but here's what's going on and they said yeah but like probably like what uh, two three quarters of the viewers have to be real right i'm like uh, oh i'm like probably like 20 percent of those viewers are real like why you were you're not going to spend that much money to add 20 percent to your viewership. Here, here's the way the analysis happens. Um, and you can get this from public third-party sites that pull data from Twitch. You can tell for any given stream using their API how many users are logged in versus not logged in. So if you have 100,000 claimed viewers, right, you might expect that on a average day stream that the number of viewers logged in would be... 10, 20, 30%, something like that. No more than that. Because most people that watch Twitch actively are doing it from their account. They are logged in. Um, Now, that's not always the case, but we know what the averages are. So we can use that as the benchmark. And we also have no reason to believe that magic would be any different. When you go to a big event that might have uh, uh, reverberations uh, over a short period of time that pulls people in from various platforms, you would expect that number to be a little higher, like another 5, maybe 10%. But it at the number of not logged in viewers was spiking over 80% 
during key segments of the weekend. That's way, way too high. It's and it's not a hundred percent definitive, but is it extremely like every ad professional in the room would throw up a red flag on that? That's just not how it works. Anytime you have that high of a percentage, it means that you're it's an ad buy. Like you're 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 basically falsifying those numbers because you want this to be a big win for you. And it's good. And and the thing about this that people were countering uh, on tw- on Twitter with was, well, everybody does this. Well, yeah, but so what? <laughs> it's it's a widespread fraud that Twitch is perpetrating all the time. And people said, well, if everybody does it, then it's still apples to apples. Nah, 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 nah. That's not how it works because it's a dial. You can. It's an ad spend project. You choose how many impressions you want to get and then you pay for them. So Wizards cranks up the dial a lot higher than, say, something like League of Legends ever needs to, a lot higher than, say, Ninja ever needs to because... The, uh, some of those other brands already have huge natural audiences. They don't need to fake numbers. When you're trying to go from like 20,000 to a six digit number, you got to buy it. And then eventually over time, maybe you'll earn your way into it by it, it if you're su- successful enough in the way that you cast the net. And people said to me, well, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is the hype. Like uh, as long as people believe that the brand is doing really well, that is, well, no, that's called lies. <laughs> that's just a falsehood. You're you because what ultimately matters is how much more magic cards sell. How how many more engagements are there on Magic Arena? How many how much more money is made by Wizards on Magic the Gathering based on the additional money they pumped into the the at the uh, advertising campaigns. And so again, my my issue here is not with the fact that Wizards spends money. You and I have talked many times about how we wish Wizards would cast a wider net, and here they are doing it. That's great. I hope that it ends up being cost effective for them. Yeah. And- but I don't I, I don't like to see the like the Gavin Verhey's of the world trumpeting about how in talking about number of viewers or number of views on YouTube as though it was some kind of organic accomplishment that is representative of the quality of the trailer, which was admittedly great, when in fact it is simply that Wizards paid for other people to watch it and they didn't even probably watch it because as with most people that are served content they didn't ask for, they largely yeah, ignore and it. I, I want to be clear that I don't have a problem with this inherently. I don't think that there is an ethical dilemma. I don't think that it's you know, shady business practices or anything. I'm not implying that in any way, shape or form. And I don't think you are either. Um, well, okay. Mm, no, I am, but only from okay. a specific only angle. Only from a specific angle. For the most part, I don't really mind it uh, because this happens everywhere all the time with every brand. I mean, shit, like a large portion of the products that you buy online where you're basing what your decision, whether to buy it off of the reviews, a lot of those reviews are bought too. Um, so this is, this is a common True. trend, right? So, is, do I have a problem with Wizards, Wizards spending money to try and make their product m- more visible? No. Uh, I don't even really mind. I differ from James here. I don't even really mind the Twitter, t- the Wizards employees trumpeting on Twitter the the gr- grand success because, uh, you know, they're paid employees. And this is why they put Watsy employee hashtags on their tweets. They're paid employees who are, you know, advertising the brand essentially. Um so that doesn't really bother me either. Just so long as no one is under the delusion that this is legitimate viewership. Just recognize it for what it is. It's, you know, they're driving those Twitch numbers up partly so that they can say to the public, look how huge our viewership is. But also 
ideally to drive it up Twitch's page. So when you click on the browse to like look at the games that are available, Magic is number two. And people go, oh, what's going on in Magic? I never see this up here. And they click into it. Or someone clicks onto YouTube and sees that there's a, the fourth most popular magic video on YouTube today is a Magic video. And it's like, oh, well, what's going on over here? It's not that they need to tell people they got 10 million views on YouTube, right? Like that doesn't really help telling me that. But they want people to, who are stumbling upon the website organically to find it and be drawn in. I don't mind any of this, but I just, yeah, I'm with, I, you know, we just want you guys to be aware of what's going on here. Don't think that my, my, my prediction last weekend that this event was going to hit like 20 or 25,000, I think was dead on. The, the problem is that these falsehoods are going to ripple through the community and they're going to post up shop and people are going to have diehard debates where they are certain that people like me are wrong when they have no idea what they're talking about. And in fact, I have a small voice in the community versus somebody like Prof. So if Tolarian Academy says, oh my God, this is amazing. We got 5 million views. A lot of people will absorb that as truth. Yeah. And then but- that will that will become part of the narrative because it's, it what ends up happening <laughs> is it ends up a, setting up further conversations where people are debating which is more popular league of legends or magic oh magic beats league of legends every weekend on viewership blah 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 and that furthers the lie because they're not they're they're not even close if magic keeps paying for viewers at a much higher rate than other brands a it's going to be it's going to demonstrate that they are less cost effective than other brands because if other brands aren't doing it it's for a reason it's because they don't think it's either they think it's not effective they don't have the budget or um, they have found other methods that are more effective that make it unnecessary. And from the analysis of the other industry professionals I talked to this about um, throughout the last few days, the, the general consensus was this is an ineffectual team, that their marketing team doesn't really know what's like what's what in this seg- sector. So they just cranked the dial as hard as they could because their their instructions from above were, this has to go off well. This has to be the biggest thing we've ever done. We're going to, you're getting a much bigger budget than normal, spend it. And they did. But I, I it, it will continue to annoy me to see people bragging about what happened unless what they're bragging about is that Wizards spent a lot of money because that's the only thing that you can really lay at their feet as as being an accomplishment, that they are spending more on advertising. That's a good thing, if it's effective. But we don't know that it was effective. We just know that they faked a bunch of numbers. How long that goes on and what happens as a result will determine how brilliant that plan was. And and none of us have visibility on that yet. Well, you know, I... I... I guess I'm of the opinion that, yeah, you have people like the professor saying that type of stuff on Twitter um, and people believing it. But I guess people are going to believe, people are going to believe stupid and wrong shit all the time. And a lot of these, but but there's going to be a huge section of people. Okay. So the people who are on Reddit and like are, are on Reddit, you know what I mean? I mean, like the people, the, you know when you complain about the Magic TCG player, you're complaining about like hundreds or thousands of people in the Magic TCG subreddit. Those people, they're always going to believe dumb, stupid things. Just, just the way this is going to work. So, like, is them believing this dumb, stupid thing any different than them believing any other dumb, stupid thing? Uh, I don't know. So, <laughs> Maybe. So, so, so let, let me phrase this in a different way. How high do they have to crank that dial and for how long before you get concerned? So let's say that if you knew that 80%, 80, 
Because this is going on across the board. It's not just this event. They've been doing this with their streamers. So all the people they put on streaming contacts, like your Gabby Spartzes and your Numot the Nummies of the world and stuff, have all been subject to these same tactics. Because this this is, as you said, happening frequently on Twitch, and it's been well documented with these streamers as well. So if I told you that, say, on any given day, your average Magic streamer, no matter who we're talking about, unless they're very small, like if they're not one of the sponsored ones, but most of the major ones that you would see on a, on a day-to-day basis. What if I told you that 60, 70, 80% of their users were not real? So their numbers are wrong and vastly inflated every single day. Yeah. I mean, I, be- I, I wouldn't be surprised, right? N- none of this surprises me, I guess. What am I, what am I concerned about? Uh, am I concerned that about the health of magic or concerned about people believing these things are popular? Because like, I guess I'm concerned that wizards might not be spending their marketing money wisely, which is bad for us for a variety of reasons. But I, I think it's more about if, if you believe a lot of this push into esports has been about uh, FOMO. It's that fear of missing out on that sweet, sweet Hearthstone money. And wizards trying to assert by hiring away video gaming professionals and esports professionals and bringing them into the team that they too can participate in this aspect of the uh, gaming collector nerd culture. And when we are trying to establish whether they have been successful in doing that, I think you need to have real numbers to compare to other people's real numbers. Now, it's very tricky because as we said, everyone else is doing it to some degree. But if some other brand's only doing it 20% of the time and Wizards is doing it 80% of the time, the gap between those numbers really matters over time. Um. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, hmm, I, I don't know. I, I guess people being wrong on the internet doesn't bother me. Uh, <laughs> having spent as much time on the internet as I have over the years, it's just like, yeah, whatever. Well, h- how many times will your friends need to bring up how popular something that Wizards did was before you will be sick of explaining well, that they're wrong? Uh, I, so, again, our, our differences in philosophy here are evident in the fact that you pick fights depending on whose numbers you believe somewhere between three times a day and once a week on Twitter with people and like, I should say pick fights, but like get into, get into to fair discussions, trying to educate people. And I'm just like, whatever, like I'm really not interested in and really not interested (laughs) in it. Like I learned a long time ago that it wasn't worth my time, effort, energy, and I don't like thinking about it. So I just don't bother. So we just, we should have separate philosophies on this in general. Fair, fair. So let, let me let me cap this with one stat that I think highlights what's going on here. If I told you that War of the Sparks official trailer page on YouTube currently had 5.8 million <laughs> views, without looking, what number of likes or dislikes? Likes, do you think I'm it putting it at like two thousand to three thousand. On 5.8 yeah. million views. Oh, that's what is it? really low. So by by comparison, let me give you like uh, Avengers okay. Endgame trailer, right? A big big trailer from recent recent times, the the last one leading okay. into the movie or whatever, right? So let me just look that up. Give me one second. I, I think this comparison will be sure. I guess I don't know who the hell is clicking like on YouTube videos. I've never in my life felt compelled to do that. So give me the ratio. Give me the Avengers numbers and I'll take a guess at the magic one. 
Sure. Give me a second. Avengers Endgame trailer. Official trailer. All right. So this is the one from March 14th. It has 83 million views and it has 2.5 million likes. So that gives me a, let's see, 83 million divided by 2.000000. So one in 33 people liked it. So uh, let's see, comparatively, that would put the Wizards one. What did you say the views on that were? 5 million? 5.8 million. 5.8. So we'll give them, we'll round them up to six. So that should have about... Oh, uh, wait, no, I did that. Did I do that math wrong? It should not have 100. Oh, so yeah, it should have a, a comparatively 181,000 likes to keep the same ratio. Uh, so if it's supposed to have 180,000, I'm going with like 60,000. Yeah, so it has 41,000. <laughs> which which suggests that the vast majority of people that watched this video so 20, were never on were never on the page to like or dislike it. Yeah, it's twenty percent of the amount that the Avengers trailer had, roughly. Right. So that is a massive fraud in terms of the actual active views of this video. Five point eight million people is ridiculous. It, probably the real number is closer to like half a million. Yeah. If that and. People that do like this video, diehard Magic fans, have reported watching it multiple times <laughs> because it's really good. I watched it three times. So once on once on the stream and twice after. Um, so a large portion of the 500,000 is probably more like 100,000 people watching it an average of five times. <laughs> so it's not even close to 6 million views. It does not deserve to be in the top 10 trending videos on YouTube. Which ends up in many ways being a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you pay enough times to have your video run in front of other videos and you count that as a view, which YouTube allows you to do, which is their way of letting you buy your way into the, t- into the trending list, then you show up on the trending list, which it did. It was number four the other day. And once you're on the trending list, then other people are clicking on what's trending and then they see it and then they watch it and real views do occur. But keep in mind that a lot of those people are coming at it from the angle of I'm interested in what's trending today. And they're just as likely to be interested in ducks lighting themselves on fire as they are Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not trending on some video game specific list or even like collectible specific list. This is all of YouTube right. globally. Right. So the quality, the quality of those impressions is vastly reduced because it's not targeted. I mean, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with you there. I think – so I, I love telling people they're wrong. Clearly, all of these people on all of this stuff is wrong. Blah, 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 blah. They just need yeah. to be realistic. Like w- magic is not all of a sudden 50 times more popular on YouTube. And it, 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 is, it is not 10 times more popular on Twitch. It is 10, 15, 20, 25% more popular this weekend, given all the money and hype they built up around it. And they spend a lot of money. And Mythic Invitational was a test. And they are going to look at real metrics. Like internally, they're not going to be diluted in the way that many people are about what happened. They know what they spent. They have set goals. They're going to measure whether they hit them. And you'll know whether they hit them or not based on whether they spend the same amount next year on similar things. Yeah. So I would say, uh, so I was talking with my buddies about this. 
I think they're trying really hard, right? Um, to to increase their 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 brand here. I think what they're they we have watched them shift over time to trying to be. Uh, they're they're taking away from the middle the fat of the competitive scene, right? We've seen them continually reduce pro benefits. We've seen them diminish the Grand Prix series. Um, they've uh, well top loading big events to try and draw viewership. So they're clearly trying to funnel money up towards the top to make it a, a spectacle esport with a, a grand stage, grand competitive stage. But like a very focused one, right? It's not supposed to be an even pipeline. It's supposed to peak, you know, be a really big at the top and anemic through the middle. Um, I think it's going to fail mostly because I don't think magic translates to that to to that market to that audience. Um, it's just it's just the the foundation of the game. Now they could contort magic to get it to that. And maybe they will. They've kind of already have started to do that with designing cards to be more flexible and best of one games. They could go further down that road. I don't know. Um, and at the same time, but at the same time, they're doing all of this, um, which we've talked about. They've also been doing this other thing over the last couple of years where they tried out masterpieces of the expeditions and they've been slowly ramping the amount of premium product up too and they're putting a lot of that out there and you know everyone's you know and they've been pushing that harder and harder every year right like there's a lot of premium product now uh which is really testing the waters for how much you can get collectors and non-competitive players to pay for this type of stuff because remember all of those premium products are not aimed at the same people who are trying to play arena at the mythic invitational not the same group of people so i think what's going to happen and i don't know maybe i'm wrong uh but i think within the next several years wizards is probably going to give up on turning this into hearthstone it's just not going to be what the game does and instead i really think what they want to do is pivot and don't use hearthstone as your market as your as your your model don't use league use critical role right you keep selling all this premium product and all these edh cards to the casual market you've already identified that these are the people who are keeping you in business pivot your top tier production values all of your can't your 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 video content and your big events towards like casual fun stuff think command zone but on a much larger scale with much more production value I think that's where they need to go and stop trying to make it be this competitive thing. You can still have a competitive pro tour type style, but it doesn't have to be your like pillar top marketing thing. Like you should be, they should be pushing towards casual, right? And just, just embracing that. We have talked about this before and we're both in agreement that, and, and they clearly see it as well. They are hesitant to leave competitive behind because it was the foundation of magic. But there is a lot to be said for players getting more out of fun than they do out of winning because there can only be one winner. And it's the same issue with like uh, kill to death ratios and shooter games like in Call of Duty. That was a big thing forever. What's your KD? What's your KD? Um, But in Apex Legends, which is like the game of the season, um, you can't even get that stat. I have no idea what my KD is. Well, well. There's a reason you can't get it. It's because you only get one D. 
essentially. But BR games don't have a it's the, the the KD ratio in BR. KD does exist in BR. It's not done per game. It's done over a season, right? Like you look at your seasonal stats, but you also look at like your average placement. Sure. I mean, average placement is 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 one thing, but one of the big reasons they de-emphasize things like KD is because it makes most players feel bad because it's below one. They die more than they kill. That is that is true. That is very true. They they have made it less obvious over time. You have to do more work to see it. I have to go to a stat tracking website to see my KD ratio in like right. PUBG. Well, I think in PUBG that might be in the game, but it's not like it used to be where you just hold tab and you just immediately see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think like there's something, and, and that's also why the your ranking on Magic Online was removed. Like they used to have the chess uh, ELO ratings or whatever um, that we all tracked for years. And then that just was done away with because for the same reasons, they it you would realize you're bad at draft. <laughs> and then you might not draft as much. So they try to keep it a little more, a little more less, uh, a little less in your face, uh, just how average we all are. Um, anyway, I, I think we've done a, a good job of tackling some of the major themes of the week. That's a wrap. Where can people find you online, Travis? Ooh, yeah, this is a lot. Okay, I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, did I say that right? Boy, I kind of brain farted in the middle there. Um, I write every Monday for the Watchtower over on MTG Price. Uh, yeah, those are my deal. That's my deal. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools, as well as access to our fabulously busy Discord that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. You know, it's funny you mentioned the fabulously busy Discord because before the cast, James was complaining that our Discord was eating some of his picks alive. <laughs> uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock. Boy, it's going to be fun when we get to the winter and we get to say in stock games including all the best in magic gathering singles sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles use the promo code finance five during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save five percent off your order and support this podcast and the winner of our 25 dollar gift certificate from cool stuff inc our lovely sponsor is uh our discord user game set magic you have won our 25 dollars for the week we will be in touch to get you your codes. You can go spend tons of money at Cool Stuff Inc. and make them happy, happy, happy. We that appreciate brings- that you are donating that to us, the hosts, for doing <laughs> all of this for you. Very gentlemanly. <laughs> that brings us to the end of the MTG Fast Finance Podcast. Thank you so much for another great week, Travis. Always a pleasure, James. And we will see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Fast <laughs> Finance.